This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Monday to you. A uh, whole new week underway. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry, the gang. We've gathered. We're ready. The band is ready to go get a Grammy. <laughs> Did you watch the Grammys? Nope. Not a minute of it. It's a good night for Was Bruno it? Mars. Yeah, I like Bruno. Bruno, I, I hear, cleaned up. Yeah. He won the record and album of the wow. year. Wow. I'm not sure what the difference is because aren't they the same? Well, one has, re- one has a, a little vinyl. hole in it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. The album <laughs> is the cover that goes over the vinyl. Right. I think it's all about packaging. Is that it's, what it is? Yeah. You won the packaging award. Yeah. Boy, it was a fun night. Apparently, uh, lots of skits that included Hillary Clinton. Well, I mean, one. Well, one. Yeah. But many uh, skits that were kind of – not skits. That sounds trivial. Many events or episodes or segments that kind of dissed the president. You were worried that some a remark about the Grammys would sound trivial? Yeah. Okay. You don't think the Grammys <laughs> – Themselves trivial. are trivial. That's why I didn't watch it. Yeah. I'm I'm a busy person now. Got a lot of stuff to do with my grandbaby. You're busy trying to get your numerous traffic tickets taken care of. Yes, they 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 forgave my traffic ticket, uh-huh. my parking ticket. See, forgiveness. I haven't had a traffic ticket for months. <laughs> parking ticket I did have and they forgave it. Thank you, BYU Parking. Mm. They understood my plight. Did you say, did you know who I am? I go, do you know who I am? You drop that. Do you know that Whoa. I talk Moniker. about you on the radio? Wow. Yeah, no, I didn't drop that. that you could have. By the way, it wouldn't have mattered. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, no, but I, I said, look, hey, I tried by putting my new car, uh, real, what do they call it? My license dealer plate, plate number. The dealer, but it wasn't even a dealer plate officially. It was, hmm. it was a dealer sticker that came with Stolen. my car. Yeah. You could have said, I've been parking here for months. No one's complained once. I did say that. <laughs> I said that. I just find it interesting that you, you got me now. That's yeah. why I, then they got I, I, I totally forgot about it. Anyway, they, they're like, hey, we'll forgive it this one time. But next time you're going to pay the $60. Well, at least you don't need to be looking over your shoulder. No. Apparently, He doesn't karma, anyways. That's when he backed into the other car in the parking lot. Yeah, no, I didn't look over my shoulder then, and I just ran right into a car. Apparently, karma is after me. I never met her. What's she like? I don't, I'll tell you when I've... Find her. <laughs> Karma's after you. I, that's just a tease for what's coming up during I, the MT News. Oh, wow. This is scary. Yeah. That's hour number two of the program. By the way, this I think we are the only team at BYU Broadcasting that parks together. And I, I you know, as Grandma used to say, teams that park together isn't it, spark together. <laughs> isn't it more we're just trying to park as close to the building as we can? Yeah. No, but, it's a bonding experience. Yeah. It's, okay. We park in a very tight... Everyone else shows up and they have to compete with the rest of yeah. the building. We have we... the entire parking lot, um, and yet somebody was in the spot I like to park in. Oh, I that's that. the worst. And the whole parking lot is totally empty, except that yeah. one spot. I keep thinking I ought to paint something on the curb, but hmm. then I'm like, uh, it's not my curb. Like employee <laughs> of the week? Yeah. It should. By the way, they should have that, an employee of the week parking spot. It really is a bonding experience, though, even though we all arrive at different times and don't see each other until the show. Yeah. It, I feel closer to you somehow. Well, we are close because our cars are right next to each other. Well, proximity-wise. And yeah. I try to stay as far away from your door as I can. 
because Thank I know you. you fling it open like Thank crazy. you. Reckless abandonment. Speaking of reckless abandon, um, Senator Lindsey Graham is I think he's, he's I think he's doing a really good <laughs> job because he kind of he speaks very clearly. Mm. They're all saying, hey, maybe there's going to be twenty five billion dollars for the wall. And he's like, we're not building a wall. We're, we're building a fence. We're building – and we're going to take care of roads and we're going to use the – twenty. but $25 billion, if used appropriately, could go a really long way to secure that border. But it's not going to be a 1,900-mile wall. It's going to be some fixes, some electronic surveillance, a really tight but, road, and maybe a new wall in a few places. When Sean Spicer was still the president's spokesperson, yeah. he had a press conference where he pulls out some uh, pictures talking about a product, right? Yeah. Now the the it's a fencing product, but the company calls it the wall. Oh, oh, right. What is it? It's a fence. Oh, it's, but it's, the product name is oh, the, wall the wall because yeah. it's a sturdy. So we fence. are building the wall. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Exactly. Oh, I missed that. As voice. he's doing it, the guy that they put in once President Trump got into office, they then allow Breitbart into the White House briefing room because it's legit. Now. Right. Right. So the Breitbart guy's going, "Excuse me." <laughs> So you're showing us a fence, but you're calling it a wall? And then Spicer's like, no, this is a wall. This is the wall. It's called the wall. This is like the debate between soda and Coke. Like some people will call a soda a Coke, even if it's like a Fanta. Ah, right. I love Coke Fanta. And then just a week or so ago, John Kelly was talking with someone. Yeah. And he said that Trump is his, he's, uh, what, his, his opinion is evolving. On the idea of a wall and with the definition, we understand there's certain parts that won't get any sort of fencing because of rivers. Do people care if there's a wall as long as it's secure? Yeah. Like if nobody can get across – because otherwise you're going to have to build a wall like through water. If you look at – It'll be underwater. When President Trump responded because somebody said his opinion changed. Yeah. He goes, no, my opinion hasn't changed. No, I do understand there's some – and then he put all the different things that Kelly talked about, right? Yeah. So his opinion has changed. Yeah. He's not going to have a huge wall that runs from the Pacific to the Atlantic. That's not going to work because it's not needed across the entire – because of the Gulf of Mexico and right. mountains and I mean, rivers. Yeah. And, so, on. yeah, it's going to change the definition. I mean, but now, you're going to need buoys. Be, right. And it may just be a fence. We don't know. But why didn't they ever – why didn't the, the anthem of – Build a buoy wall. Why didn't they? Why didn't that ever take off? Mm. It doesn't work well on a T-shirt. It's too many syllables. Yeah. Plus, buoy is a hard word to know you're pronouncing right. It's a fun one, though. Oh, totally. Speaking of fun, by the way, uh, uh, Nikki Haley isn't <laughs> laughing at Hillary Clinton. No. Hillary Clinton did a skit where she was during the Grammys, where she was reading the Fire and Fury. She was book. at the very end of a long of a, a, a long, bunch of it people. was a bunch of people yeah. reading from the book. <laughs> they had her read the part about how he likes to re- eat from McDonald's because uh, no one's tampering with his food. <laughs> she was struggling, too. But then Nikki Haley's like, not funny. No. That's not funny. She's had a tough week with that specific book. Yeah. There's accusations about improprieties, and someone had said yeah. that her and the president and some things, and she said nothing's ever happened. This is ridiculous. That was yeah. yesterday. Well, that's got to be frustrating with this whole Me Too movement, which would be empowering women. Then one of the most powerful women is reading from a book that is kind of disempowering to another powerful woman. Well, it doesn't name Nikki Haley. Other people feel like it possibly uh, is her. They've, they're inferring that it's her. 
Oh, boy. So You know, it sounds like politics to me. It really kind of does. Which is why we're going to have Joe Cannon on in a bit to help us walk through all things political. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? President Trump will give his first State of the Union address Tuesday, a speech the White House says is themed, Build a Safe, Strong, and Proud America. The president is expected to highlight Republicans' tax reform legislation and other first-year accomplishments. Though the uh, White House aides told the Associated Press he'll set aside his more combative tone for one of compromise. Oh, wow. That's Mm. great. For many GOP lawmakers, hopes for the night are subdued. I hope the speech is uneventful in a good way, says uh, Representative Charlie Dent of Pennsylvania. Last year he addressed Congress, and that speech was reasonably measured. I hope this is what happens again. Trump's talk before a joint session of Congress last year was not officially Considered a State of the Union because that comes after the first year in yeah, office. Right, exactly. They had him as a special guest. <laughs> he was a visiting professor that day. Okay. After his first year in office was overshadowed by multiple sexual misconduct allegations, President Trump has finally answered the burning question. He says, no, he's not a feminist. If anyone huh? was actually <gasps> wondering. He said this in an interview with ITV host Pierce Morgan to be... Uh, which was broadcast on Sunday, if you wanted to catch that. It's probably on YouTube or something. Trump said that he has tremendous respect for women, but describing himself as a feminist would be going too far. No, I wouldn't say I'm a feminist. I'm for women. I'm for men. I'm for everyone, the president was quoted as saying. He's an everyoneist. I have tremendous <laughs> respect for women. You see all the women I have working around me, working with me. He said, it's not immediately clear how the question of feminism came up, but more than a dozen women have accused Trump in the past of misconduct. But he's not a feminist. Hmm. Well, I mean, is he a masculinist? Not sure. He says he's for everyone. He's He's a humanist. He's a humanist. Well, that's even scarier. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's good. Peter Schweitzer. You heard that name before? Uh, I think I knew his great-great-grandpa Albert. He's an author of the controversial Clinton Cash... Ooh, book. He's yeah. a frequent guest on Fox News, okay. and he is preparing to publish a book that reportedly takes aim at corruption by top Washington figures on both sides of the aisle this oh, time, boy. and include those now inside the White House. Uh, the book called Secret Empires, How Our Politicians Hide Corruption and Enrich Their Families and Friends is due out in March, so you can go ahead and put that on your list. Mm. It points at a vast corruption by Washington figures who leverage their political power to enrich their family members and friends. You can probably get that just from the title. Um, by often by greasing deals with foreign entities. Oh, boy. Hmm. That's, that's not going to be a fun book. His book is under tight embargo, except for, of course, what I we're bet. reading now. Uh, who reportedly target current members of Congress, high-ranking Obama officials, and the Trump family. Oh, man. So more books. Books, books, books. This is interesting. Everyone. Getting crazy. By the way, it's the first week that uh, Fire and Fury is not the number one book. Whoa! For sales. Whoa! Some self-help thing took its spot away. Why do you, why do you say it. self-help like that? I had a bad. Just you rather was read it, Fire and Fury? Was it starved stuff? Ooh, starved stuff. Great book. Feeding <laughs> the seven basic there. needs. And finally, say experts say the reason isn't price gouging by Boeing. Oh, but but what? The Air Force One oh. needs two new freezers. They're t- t- together twenty-four million dollars. Give me a break. What? You know what? You give me $24 million, I'll get you the best freezer you can imagine in that airplane. I mean, it may not work. The new fridges aren't <laughs> your kitchen frigidaires or even the typical jetliner's cabin feeding cool boxes. The requirement for Air Force One is the ability to feed passengers and crew for weeks without resupplying. Okay. In case of, say, 
a huge attack of some kind, and right. Air Force One needs to stay in the air, and like they did during nine uh, eleven, they need to have this requirement of being able to serve three thousand meals in. Ma- they have to store three thousand meals in the fridges and freezers below the passenger cabin. Five chillers cool a total of twenty six climate controlled compartments. In December, Air Force awarded Boeing the $23.7 million contract to replace the two massive A $24 million. I mean, isn't this funny? We can refuel Air Force One in air, Mm -hmm. just have a tube that pushes fuel into the airplane. We can't somehow get them food. How would you get food inside a moving airplane? Have you not seen how Tom Cruise can somehow get down to an airplane, somehow oh, yeah. hang on to an airplane? Computers are great. If Tom Cruise <gasps> can do that. Now, sir, hmm? he does his own stunts. He does. There's a video. Well, send you, Tom Cruise with some food. Him breaking his ankle. He can watch. Uh, he could deliver Chinese like food down to the airplane. Just swing in with the plastic bag. Here you go. <laughs> Whenever I tell my dad there's a new Mission Impossible movie, his first question is, Oh, what's he hanging off of now? Yeah, pretty That's much. That's a great dad yeah. right there. Yeah, you saw the mummy? He was hanging out of the airplane as it disintegrated around <laughs> They him. always have to. Right. Yeah. Now, we heard that President Trump said he was eager to talk with Bob Mueller. Oh, really? Under oath. Remember that yeah, last yeah, week? Yeah. He says, I will talk to him under oath. Yeah. Immediately, Excited. his lawyers came out and went, whoa. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't the wall, Donald. So this was out of uh, Axios over the weekend. It said the White House level of anxiety is very high, according to sources close to Trump, after the president told The New York Times' Maggie Haberman that he's willing to submit himself to a live interview under oath with the special counsel. One source who knows Trump well as anyone told me that he believes the president would be incapable of avoiding perjuring himself. Yeah, that's the problem. Trump doesn't deal in reality, the source says. He creates his own reality, and he actually believes it. A number of people in the president's orbit have read an article by Bloomberg's Timothy O'Brien. It's entitled, I've Watched Trump Testify Under Oath. It Isn't Pretty. (laughs) Now, this is O'Brien from Bloomberg. He goes, speaking from experience, I think the president's attorney should grab their worry beads. Not sure what those are. Says Trump sued me for libel in 2006 for a biography I wrote, Trump Nation, alleging that the book misrepresented his business records and understated his wealth. Mm. Trump lost the suit in 2011, but during the litigation, my lawyers deposed him under oath for two days in 2007. Uh, Now, this writer also saw Trump's tax returns. Oh, yeah, he's the guy. He, he, yeah. he accused him of misstating his wealth, so that means he has to prove, prove his wealth. Show me your wealth. So he saw the tax returns. He can't say, because there's you yeah. know, non-disclosure things, but he has said he's overstating what he's what he's making. Trump and o- he didn't lose the case. Yeah, the, the writer won, basically. Trump lost. So it goes, Trump ultimately had to admit 30 times that he lied over the years about all sorts of stuff. About uh, much of a, uh, how big a, a Manhattan real estate project he actually owned, how much of that he owned, uh, the price of his own golf club memberships, the size of tr- the Trump organization, his wealth, his speaking fees, how mm. many condos he sold, his debt, and whether he borrowed nah. money from family to avoid going personally bankrupt. He also lied during the deposition about his business dealings with career criminals. He was be- and it says Trump's lawyers are already signaling they are deeply uncomfortable about the, pro- about the prospect of a live freewheeling session between Trump and Mueller. Shortly after Trump made his brash declaration, his attorney came out and says, I will make the decision on whether president- the president talks to the special counsel. I have not made that decision as of yet. Wow. But Trump says he's ready to talk to him. You know, I think George Costanza has some advice for President Trump. Oh, cool. When he goes in for this interview. Just remember, it's not a lie. If you believe it. It's huh? a great point. 
because they can't. Yeah. Even if they did a lie detector, if you believe it, it would show that yeah. it's true. I, mean, I believe it. Yeah. Now, when they're calling these lies, yeah. we've talked before about the, the concept of the outer borough talk. Yeah. It's just bravado. He's bravado. He always overstates. He's exaggerating. But It's in, a Scaramucci. As we talk as, with legality, as you're dealing with yeah. in other situations that we won't talk about, but legality is about specific words. Yeah, it's all about. And you the can't words. just inflate things because you think it's right. the way you want to operate. Like collusion has a definition legally, right. and he can believe whatever he wants. Or obstruction—that's another legal term. And but there's specific definitions, yeah. and yeah, that's where not. he kind of runs into a problem in depositions. There's a video, I believe. Of this deposition that I've seen, and you see a guy that's super uncomfortable because it's a deposition. Oh, yeah. The guy across the table is trying to get you on something. It could take out. I mean, this could take days. And he's not someone who sits there for long periods of time, as right. we've heard in meetings and things. And so, plus, he doesn't know everything that everybody has said. No, he doesn't know what uh, Papadopoulos said. But he's willing to go out on a limb because that's how he talks. He's a limb walker. He's a limb walker. So. <laughs> Could be interesting. Wow. I bet they're licking their chops. Wouldn't you? Like, they're prob- you know you got this guy and yeah. he can make him mad and push him and then all of a but sudden he'll say a bunch it, of It's stuff. like when he – well, he last week he walked into a room. John Kelly was holding an off-the-record meeting about immigration uh, plans. They were actually going to release him today. Yeah. And then the president walked in the room and started talking about DACA, mm-hmm. and they had to go change all the plans because stuff he said in DACA changed right in this sort of impromptu discussion with the media changed what their plan was. Yeah. So the White House had to scramble. So you're dealing with someone who off the cuff changes your whole approach to yeah. a huge issue. You just can't do that in How's court. that going to work in court? <laughs> There's this whole fact-based thing. What they need is Perry Mason. Oh, yes. To, to like cross-examine him. And then- He'll just casually say something that ticks him off. Like, you know, I mean, it's too bad you didn't have a larger crowd at your inauguration. Ooh. And then all of a sudden, what? And then he goes off and then he starts the, what'd you call it? The Brooklyn. The outer borough talk. The outer borough talk. But I don't know. But I think in the end of all this, we'll find out that um, if you look at it through the realm of exaggeration, mm-hmm. maybe there's not much there. No, it's just a lens. Just if you put on the exaggeration lens, he's just but is Scaramucci. Is the law equipped enough to look to see through exaggeration to see what he actually meant? What we might find. Perry uh, Mason. Here, Perry Mason's yeah. walking in. Used to watch this as a kid. Did you? My mom and dad were like, "Oh, Perry Mason's on." I'm like, all right, whatever. Everybody, be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> he's in court again. It was the older <laughs> ones when. They had, like, special investigators doing all the show, and then uh-huh. he would come in and just stand in court because yeah. he's old with a cane. Did you like him better as Perry Mason <laughs> or Ironside? Hmm. I don't know that I have a preference. Really? Yeah. Standing or sitting? That's basically it. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it when he could stand. Yeah. When he was mobile. Yeah, it just seemed better. Yeah. Don't you remember the Ironside episode where he stood up and it was like a miracle? You're like, whoa. Mm-mm. Sounds I was Perry Mason the whole time. Ha! Tricked you. Well, straight ahead, uh, Joe Cannon will be joining us. Joe's our Washington insider, and uh, we're going to get his take on a lot of stuff from uh, Donald Trump in Davos, Switzerland, to Mueller. What's going on there? Ah, open seats, State of the Union coming up. Fun stuff. Straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you understand your political world and be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Because it's Monday, we like to talk politics. We don't actually like <laughs> We don't like to. But we feel it's important to because we all need to just understand more what's going on. And because we may not have that insight, we call in a pro. His name is Joe Cannon. Joe is our Washington insider because he just studies it. He's a smart, smart guy, and he helps us understand what's really happening or tries to help us understand what's going on. Give us some guidelines there. Joe is a former chairman of the Utah Republican Party and also was once an editor of the Deseret Morning News, which is a big job. So he can help us also understand a little bit about what's going on with the attack on media today. Joe Cannon. And thanks for being with us, my friend. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Even though it sounds like, uh, so you don't really want to talk to me. It's really well, no, I. Do. But, but, but it's your duty. It's our duty to the to the to, to uh, this on your listeners, Joe. It's okay, politics. I got it. I got it. It's politics, and it's not. It just used to seem like politics was a lot clearer, and now it just is a lot of finger pointing. But maybe I've missed something politically. You know? No, I mean, I think the, the chasm uh, between left and right is deeper and wider. Yeah. I think that's true. So. And it doesn't feel like we get anywhere. Uh, but in fact, well, let me mix it up a little bit for you. Um, I, I really like – and you tell me um, because maybe I'm – maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm too – Nice or maybe too naive. But uh, when you think about it, Senator Lindsey Graham, for example, seems to be one of the straightest talkers in in the Senate. And um, because I don't know if you heard his latest comments, like we're not building. We don't need twenty five billion for a wall. It's not a wall we're building. It's border security and it's going to take a, a bunch of different forms. But he seems to speak more clearly than the rest of the than the rest of the GOP is he going out on a limb? How do you think he's doing? And, and is he as clear as I think he is? Uh, Graham, Senator Graham. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think I mean he is tends to be viewed. I mean he is, is more pro immigration. So I mean, but he but he also I think understands the idea of border security, which is what he's talking about there in those in those remarks and. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think you were talking earlier. You and Terry were talking earlier about well, what is a wall? Yeah. Uh, I, I think Graham sort of nails it. He said, you know, it's a wall is basically border protection, whatever that means. But not. It's but, not going to be a wall, a nineteen hundred mile wall. No, no, no. But I think even Trump uh, said that. Notwithstanding, it's not backing away one bit from no. the wall. Yeah, it's but, it's it's, uh, it's a language what, thing. Yeah, what the wall is is a, a, a barrier. Yeah, so, and making it. I, I think Graham is Graham is you know he's of course he's trying to you know pour I don't want to say cold water but you know try to get things uh, from a less hot rhetoric. Yeah, he seems safer. As a senator, safer in his seat because he seems to dare to say more. A lot of these senators don't even dare go out on a limb like that. But um, is he safer politically? I don't know. I mean, I, you, I didn't tell you I wanted to talk about Lindsey Graham, but it's he, somebody's I got it. Pretty safe. No, I think he's pretty safe politically. Yeah, you know, he's well regarded by his colleagues. I think uh, all politicians worry about one thing more than any other thing, and that's getting reelected. So. Politicians that 
act, uh, you know, confident like Lindsey Graham and, and, uh, and say these things that somehow others might think are politically problematic for them. Yeah. They would, they still wouldn't say that if they thought it would impeach their reelection. Right. So, right. so I think, so for whatever reasons, Graham feels very comfortable in his constituency. Yeah. How do you think uh, the president went to Switzerland uh, to go talk to all the really big billionaire globalist kind of world? Uh, how do you think he did there in Davos? Well, uh, everything is about expectations, of course. So uh, even CNN has said, Chris Solis has said, uh, look, you know, he defied expectations, so it was a victory for him. I mean, he, he went over, first of all, saying he went over, uh, a lot of people go, wait a second, that's who he campaigned against. Those, those are the globalists. That is the global town hall, you know, where they, they all get together. But he goes over, then people say, well, he's going to, no one's going to show up at his speech. People are going to snub him. People are going to walk out. People yeah. are going to protest. There were, there were protests, by the way. I mean, there were some Swiss uh, protests. But, but by and large, he was greeted very, very well. Uh, he gave a talk that was a very normal talk. You know, I'm here as the salesman for America. You know, America is America is open for business. I mean, was, the talk was pretty unexceptionable uh, for almost any president, and therefore uh, it was a. Uh, I'm, I'm going back to Chris Saliza now, uh, and CNN was saying, therefore, it's kind of a win for him. Which is big, because so, Chris Saliza, you know, tends to you know fight against. Uh, oh yeah, and, no, he's no. Uh, Trump fan, right. <laughs> so that's actually uh, pretty good news, too. I mean, and, and at points, um, I mean, a lot of people were, were praising it. It's still it's still fighting for America. And he's not he's not saying it, it, it doesn't mean we want to go it alone. It just means we have to look out for our own, which is what right. other countries are doing. Well, which is sort of the the inherent sense of sovereignty, mm-hmm. uh, and he, he, you know, but he tied those two together. He tied his, you know, uh, America first worldview with America not alone. I mean, I think you said those exact words. So, hmm. uh, but as I think you were getting at, it, it does clearly point to the state of the union, where I think he's going, and other people think he's going on the. State of the Union. What? What? Let's get to that. What do you think? I mean, what do you think he needs to deliver? Um, what? What is the expectation? Because communicationally, when they write him a, a really good talk, those seem to go off pretty well. So, I'm assuming he'll be able to stay in the boundaries. Yeah, I think uh, almost the, the consensus is that he's. Uh, going to read the speech from the teleprompter and stick to the script. Uh, th- there are a lot of constraints, I mean, uh, uh, on him. I mean, it is, is, he's, he's got the, you know, the Mueller investigation threat, but his biggest uh, political problem right now is what happens in uh, next November in the congressional election. Mm. And so I think a lot of the speech is going to be aimed at Trying to woo people, um, mostly independents. First of all, shore up the base, and then uh, and woo independents to him. 
And so I don't, don't, I'm not saying that can't be done, but I think that's one of the big goals here is to appear as somebody who could be more broadly acceptable to it, at, at least the, the center, if there is one, the, the, the independent block there. Oh, and he, he, need, he needs to do that to, to uh, give his team a chance to win. Uh, in in November, because if the House goes to the Democrats, that's a disaster for Trump, because then it will be all impeachment all the time. Oh yeah. And uh, so he's. Uh, I, I I'm thinking. I'm looking through that lens that he he will, you know, take the opportunity to, to reach out to talk about how his policies help everybody, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it works. Hmm. Plus, it's um, it, it seems like he's he could talk a lot about the economy. He could talk a lot about jobs. There's, I mean, he could go shine a big spotlight on the fact that the country's doing really well in a few areas that that he should probably get some credit for. Well, of course, um, I'm sure after deep and careful consideration, he will decide to take some credit for <laughs> the good economic news. I, I think a big piece of, the piece of that talk, I, I haven't seen any draft. And I don't, yeah, I haven't either. But uh, I'm, I'm guessing it was going to be very long on accomplishments, very long on reaching out, very long on, on sort of high-sounding conservative, but not necessarily populist uh, um Phrases and hmm. you know messages. Maybe he'll make an announcement that he's going to quit Twitter, and he will end <laughs> the presidential tweeting. And that that in and of itself may get this massive run for the independence, and he'll win resoundingly in November. Yeah, mm, maybe yeah. not. I don't. Yeah, I'm just I, dreaming. I think you're right on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just dreaming, Joe. Can a guy not dream? Um, it's uh, because since the last time we met, uh, there was a shutdown or talk. There was the shutdown. We talked about it last time. And though there's also um, there's there's been a kind of a reopening uh, of the government, but on a very tentative basis. John Cornyn, Republican from Tennessee, Congress will have to pass at least two more continuing resolutions to keep the government uh, afloat and working. How do you think that's gone for the GOP or the Democrats? Anybody win that battle? Well, boy, it, it, it went back and forth. As, well, of course, both sides claimed victory. Right. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, the, Democrat, the Democrats probably lost, in a, in a minor sense, within the Beltway. As I said last time, I don't think anyone even cares by by and large. As a, as a political issue, I don't think it uh, it has much resonance in the in the general population. Hmm. So, um, I, I I do think it changed the dynamics of the negotiations. So I I, I think that uh, Schumer is going to be a lot more careful. He already has, you know. He, he said, "Okay, we'll put the wall on the agenda." Then, then he said, "No, we're not going to do that." So they're they're kind of retreating to their corners. But the answer is, Corden is right. I, I don't know that whether he's right that it's one continuing resolution, is it two, is it multiple ones? But they, the 
sides have really hardened up around this, and the best the best you're going to get for a while is, okay, we're just going to vote to keep the government going for a while. I don't think there's going to be another shutdown. Yeah, boy, let's hope not. I mean, there really are repercussions that that tend to you know be played out as the the air bubbles get in the government lines. And then there's just weird sounds and problems down the road. Um, again, we're speaking with Joe Cannon. Joe is our Washington insider. He is the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation, which is an organization trying to lower fuel costs for us here in the United States and also has a, a very rich history in the political world and understanding what's going on politically. What do you think about um, the, the announcement this week of Trump? apparently wanting to fire Mueller, right? At some point, he was like ready to to fire Mueller and his investigators, but everybody, his attorneys said, don't you dare. Well, I, you know, boy, this is another one of those parallel universes, although the parallel universes come together pretty much on this one. Hmm. Uh, even, I think, Fox, the inveterate defenders of the president, uh, recognized that he wanted to fire uh, Mueller. The, the question is, did he order the firing and then backed out? Did he just want it? Did he talk to the, his uh, counsel about it? It's clear that he wanted to fire Mueller. It's also clear that McGahn, his uh, White House counsel, and, and others maybe uh, said, she really bad idea. And so that was the ending of it. Hmm. He uh, ended up not doing it. But yeah, I, I think there is, it was complete, it's clear that he wanted to. Whether he actually ordered it and then was pushed back, I, yeah, I, I, I don't, don't know. know. But, but clearly he talked about it and wished it to happen. How do you think he would do actually being deposed uh, by Mueller's investigators? I mean, it seems like... Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk that he's kind of a loose cannon, right, in, in these type of depositions. He ends up saying stuff that's not necessarily true, but he goes in with such confidence. If you were his attorney, what would be going through your head if you had to go face Mueller? Well, uh, like every attorney you've ever heard on TV, from Alan Dershowitz to anybody else, I think no one would recommend <laughs> that Trump sit down with Mueller if he didn't absolutely have to. And I don't, I don't think he absolutely has to. So I, yeah, I, I, I I'm going to guess that you're not going to see uh, a Trump Mueller really showdown. Down. Yeah. So instead his attorneys, so they're saying they're eager to, but they, they may very well just back out and say, yeah, we're not doing that. Well, they say different things. And one of the things they say, well, he says, I want to do it. He, the president, yeah. I want to do it. Uh, there's, you know, his actual lawyers are are surrounding that with lots of caveats, like uh, how willing they are to cooperate, you know. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, obviously, we'll see. But it would, I, I think it would be a mistake for him to do that, just, just from a legal standpoint, legal strategy standpoint. It seems like – remember, uh, Bill Clinton was deposed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it seemed like – boy, I would trust a Bill Clinton to go in there as an attorney, thinking like an attorney, able to watch his words and schmooze you know, whoever he needs to schmooze. But uh, I would be more afraid of if my client were Donald Trump. Yeah, but even Bill Clinton ended up a, yeah, getting, actually getting impeached, yep. B, being, being disbarred. 
uh, for lying under oath. I mean, there were the uh, yeah. I mean, so even even a person who was trained in the law, very 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 hard to make it through that um, you know that those thickets because yeah. you know they they've interviewed they've had thousands of hours of the interviews, hundreds of thousands of documents reviewed. Uh, wow, it's just a it's it's a, a no win situation. And is it normal? Weren't they asking for the like questions? What do you want to know from the president? Is it normal to give those questions? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't practice that kind of law, but but uh, my my impression is that generally they they want the other side to come prepared. Ah. So uh, just at a tactical level, they you know they probably let him know. And there's probably some courtesy here because it's a a political, you know, uh, a, a political situation. Yeah. But I, I, I don't think they're going to send the actual list of questions. But yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, what else, Joe, should we be talking about and should others be thinking about when it comes to politics today? So I wanted to say one thing. I listened to you earlier on, you know, while, while I was getting ready here. The new number one book is not just some self-help book. What is it? Book by, by a guy named Jordan Peterson, who is a clinical psychiatrist. It's like he taught at Harvard for a while. Now he's, he taught, teaches at the University of Toronto. And he gave a, uh, an interview. So this is, you know, a professor. Yeah. And he, he, he gave an interview, and it was very controversial on, on Canadian TV, or maybe it was a British journalist. And uh, there's a lot. You just... You gotta you gotta think about Jordan Peterson. Peterson. Uh, kind of look up Peggy Peggy Noonan wrote a really interesting piece about him Friday in the Wall Street Journal. I think it was Friday, Friday or Saturday. Um, and her title, the title of it, "Who's Afraid of Jordan Peterson?" Hmm. So this is he he's plunged the world into a whole discussion of political correctness, what you can say, what you can't say. Um, yeah, so I mean, interesting. He's a, he's a guy you you might actually yeah, be in and, and have him and, on the show. Uh, have him on the show. I mean, he's a very interesting guy. That 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 book is rocketed up because of this whole controversy. He's talking about the twelve rules for life and antidote to chaos. Yeah, it's a four hundred plus page book. However, it's not it's not just a simple twelve rules for happiness book. Yeah, uh, it's, it's huge. It's, 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 it's a very it's a much deeper. Uh, um, Look at things. Yeah. Anyway, the guy's a very interesting guy. He's a very, quote, controversial professor. Interesting. Um, Yeah. um, So, yeah, I would would read the Peggy Noonan piece, and then uh, he might be an interesting guy. The other thing is, I mean, I often come back to this point, but uh, last Saturday was the Holocaust uh, Remembrance Day, International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Right. And there are very fewer and fewer and fewer survivors and a number of survivors put out a statement, what's going to happen when we're gone? How, how, what's going to happen? Who's going to remember this? And in their statement, though, they, they cited numerous examples of anti-Semitism, mostly in Europe, mostly in France. But, but Jews are fleeing France. You can't wear your kippah, the yarmulke, uh, mm. in public without getting harassed. Uh, on many American campuses, there's the so-called BDS movement, boycott, uh, divest and sanction Israel, which is a very thin layer guise of uh, 
of uh, anti-Semitism. So, um, anyway, it's just just Holocaust Remembrance Day last Saturday. And yeah. In fact, uh, that's one of the reasons, I guess, why Mrs. Trump went to the Holocaust Museum uh, in Washington because she wanted to to commemorate that before she went out of town. Everyone was like, why was she going there alone? And uh, that's the very reason. Well, Joe Cannon, we thank you. Appreciate you again for your great work and uh, just insight into all things political for us. Again, you can find out more about Joe and his his desire and and work to help lower fuel costs here in the United States by going to fuelfreedom.org. Find out more about his organization and their work. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you understand the world around you, right here on BYU Radio. Well, get ready, folks. If you have a cell phone and you like your 4G service, uh, a lot of the, the big cell phone companies were talking about 5G service coming out. They were going to make billions and billions of dollars. And now the federal government is saying, uh, we may we may take over, build our own 5G broadband network nationwide to protect the Americans from them Chinese that are coming in to try to steal all of our secrets Allegedly. over the phone. Allegedly. Well, I mean, they... Well, the, the problem, a lot of the technology is built in China. Right. And then it comes over here. Did they put something in it? That's kind of a, a yeah. fear that's been out there. And uh, this is also going to the idea that there's always this discussion of the internet needs to be more of a utility. Yeah. Instead of just something you have to go purchase right. on your own. We used to have wires in the ground or in the over, over our heads right. that the government owned so they could regulate and control these things. And they would, they would better... Competition in in uh, I believe I've heard in England the way they do it is the government owns all the infrastructure and then all the companies buy into yeah, it. Yeah, just then you lease it back, and right. then you have this massive competition. Like right now, most of America, wherever you live, you either have one or two options when it comes to say cable. Mm. If you want to get a dish system, sometimes it just doesn't work where you live because of buildings or whatever. And so you have very limited resources as to what you can actually do because the cable line is owned by a specific company. Right. Well, and some towns and communities probably don't even get served. Right. Or if they do, it's just not financially viable. Yeah. And so that that's kind of the argument is the government could better utilize that with tax dollars and get all get this type of service to everyone. Yeah, it's like an infrastructure. And then companies package. could rent their space and then be able to offer more competitive options mm. and you'd have five or six different ones competing for your yeah. television service rather than two who don't seem to care because you're either going to stay with them or you'll go to this other guy and it just doesn't matter because eventually you're going to come back. So it could be so, a good thing. Could be a great thing. Or the government could own your phone, and that's maybe something people are scared of. Well, right now, AT&T owns the phone. Right. And And you and everything you want to do with your phone. I'm more scared of the Disney Fox acquisition. Now, Mm. the story is the 5G network, which would be the next generation after 4G, and then you have LTE, and then it goes to 5G is the next speed, I guess. But um, uh, it says here... uh, that the current Trump administration was considering a federal takeover of part of the country's wireless network as a precaution against China. So not just the future, just now. 
now. But then if they build out the 5G... Then they got to build the 6G. Then, Well, that, I mean, that, that'll be the future, and it gets, you know, there's some expense there, too. But with the idea of, like, automated cars and how far that needs to go yeah. with sensors embedded in the roads and stuff, you start getting into infrastructure, the government needs to be involved to make sure that's regulated more. This is... So. And by the way, think of all the jobs. Think of... The, I mean, what a... If you're going to spend half a trillion dollars to get you know something built boy you could put a lot of people to work for that is this a silly question probably let me ask it first okay what does the g stand for five goodness levels of well that's gl they just call them goodness goodness points okay i've never thought about that until now yeah 5g is five goodness points now many people are just on four goodnesses I don't know if that's the proper term. It's goodness. Yeah. See, the stuff you learn on the Matt Townsend Show. That's so what we more do. is better. Yeah. More okay. more is gooder. Yes. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. That's going to be the new uh, slogan if the government takes over 5G. Okay. We'll continue uh, learning together and making it up as we go. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This just in, this just in, uh, the G in 5G, 4G, and 3G networks is not goodness. That's disappointing. I when, know. when Terry said what it was, I know. it was I thought, disappointing. I thought we were on to something, but apparently it's generation. Oh. It's the five generation. It's the fifth generation you know, network that the government may build. Then the fourth generation is what many of us are living on. And some are still back in the 2G. Which I think is just a can and a string, two cans and one string. So why couldn't they say five gen or four gen? Ooh, five gen because isn't that hipper? Well, it it, it is hipper, um, but they needed it to just probably be two digits. Well, because so, we're so obsessed with condensing everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can't we can't exert the effort to say generation no, or it's, gen. It's a lot of words. It's a lot of uh, it's a lot of work. To have to pronounce the whole word generation. It's tiring. But, and again, we, again, we're back to generations. Millennial, baby boom. I mean, I think that's why I liked five goodness points. I, st- I still think we need to adopt the moniker that you uh, – or the uh, the saying that you shared during the last break. Which was – what was that again? It was – what was it? It was profound. More is gooder. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I mean, a lot of the English majors hate that. But you're not the ones leading the world. President is. So they may be rebuilding our infrastructure, which I think is an exciting thing. Uh, and imagine the day, too, that it's all of the, that infrastructure was built along the side of the freeways. So then you can just have this information highway on, on top of or under or next to your own highway. It's exciting. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, see the good in the world and be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Along with Jeff and Terry, the gang is gathered 
to bring you the best uh, information we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead a healthier, happier t- uh, time in life. By the way, um, if you missed our last hour, you got to go check out our podcast. Go to Dr. Just go to uh, BYUradio.org. Just look up Dr. Matt's show, Matt Townsend. That's my name. Don't wear it out. All right. I will never say it again. Sorry. That's me going all childish. You can also find it on iTunes, on TuneIn, on Stitcher. It's everywhere. But uh, you're going to want to go check out uh, those segments. Plus, you can really look at any of our past 1,410 shows. Is it really that many? Yeah. I know. Been doing it for five years here. Plus, uh, actually six years in May, five and a half years we've been grinding away at the, uh, you know, on, on life and trying to give you all the tools we can. Today, by the way, no exception, we will be talking today about a crisis of faith and what might be happening to younger people as they're becoming less uh, focused on, you know, church and wanting to have a faith system. And is that even true data? We'll talk to a researcher here at Brigham Young University to give us some insight on that. Plus, of course, uh, we're going to talk about life and politics, and it's almost like you can't not say something about the Grammys. You could. Uh, Bruno mm. Mars walked away with the show. Yeah. Along with him and Hillary. And Hillary and others. I mean, there was a lot of uh, Me Too moments, hashtag Me Too moments. See, I I went back and looked at Bruno Mars. He did. He's been in a couple Super Bowl yeah. half times. Oh, he's a great entertainer. He is a great entertainer. You don't yeah. need to watch the Grammys. Just go watch him on YouTube. No. It's great stuff. He's fantastic. He's dancing around. You're like, oh, look at that. That's, that's something you yeah. can watch. You can, there's real Carpool talent. karaoke. Have you seen him on that one? Yep. That show with James Corden? Corden tried to do a Subway karaoke with Sting and a uh, yeah. guy named Shaggy. That didn't go well. Didn't it? Granted, it was set up not to go well, but it was funny. See, now I would have <laughs> loved to have seen a, a Carpool karaoke with with James Corden and Hillary. Well, I, I, that would have been she, great. I don't know that she's a singer. I don't know that she has, a, she has a Grammy. <laughs> what? Oh, on her book. She had a, cause she read her book and her performance. She's it won a Grammy for a it. village. Wow. Yeah. That's why, that's why she's all involved. She's a Grammy winner. Yeah. We just watched a movie on Netflix, uh, this last weekend about a polka artist who was nominated for a Grammy. I watched that as well. You did? Uh-huh. The king, or uh, the polka king? The polka king. What are you guys doing? Jack Black. There's like all kinds of it things was, to watch. I know. Well, actually, it was really yeah. interesting. I'm in between. I'm looking for a new. I watched a lot of comedians yeah. in cars drinking coffee, yeah. which is interesting because I don't even drink coffee. It's interesting. But it was fun to watch the comedians. And interesting little fact about Jerry Seinfeld. Did you know that he's not? He wears tennis shoes every day. Every day. Mm. Well, you can when you're getting in a $200,000 car. <laughs> That's not his, but yeah. <laughs> But um, one of the things that's interesting is he's really not for all of this swearing that these comedians, comedians do. He right. thinks it's a cheap way to get a laugh. Oh, it is. Sure. And he's very adamant that, you know, there's better ways to get people to laugh. And really, you should use more of your brain than your language. It's kind of the equivalent of, you know, your kids will always laugh when potty words are said. Yeah. It's just like that. Now, you know what? My mom will, too. Well, I will, too. Yeah. Don't give me a, a well-placed potty. I'm, yeah, <laughs> probably no, won't talk no, too good, much about. Don't it. say it. Good way, way to have self-control there. In fact, <laughs> I did a I did a speech last night to a group of youth, young mm. not youth, young single adults, like thirty or twenty to thirty year olds, and um, yeah, 
it's there's just this human nature to even if you don't say certain words, people just giggle out loud when they hear certain thought or they have a, when I can create a certain thought in their mind. Hmm. They just want to giggle. So they were immature. Well, I don't know if they were or I was, <laughs> but people just – you want to giggle. And my wife, by the way, she – I don't know what it is. She will laugh at – like, okay, let's just say, for example, that my zipper was down accidentally while I was giving a speech. All right. Like, let's just say that. Yeah. I mean, it's for never instance. happened. Right. But let's say if it did. Maybe last night. Yeah, last night it didn't happen. Oh, okay. Because I had a pulpit in front of me. Right. But – um. She will. She just thinks that's the funniest thing in the world. Huh. Me mm. or me tripping and falling with my bad ankles. You know, my my nana's ankles. Your grinkles. My yep. grinkles. She. If I fall, she just thinks that's hilarious, and she can't stop laughing. Do, or if I'm she, passing a kidney stone. Does she wait till maybe after to find out if no. you're hurt or not? Mm-mm. Really? She's just. She kind See, of. She. I mean, she'll run to my side. My family and I were riding um, public transit. Really? We parked our car, drove downtown to see Christmas lights, and my kid was sitting on this chair. It was one of those the, the single chairs they have. Yeah. My wife and I were sitting on the double chair with the baby. He wanted He's to be over the there. big boy. Right. Yeah. And I told him, you need to sit down. Yeah. The train's going to stop. It's going to start. Yeah. It may throw you. You need to sit in your chair and be ready to move. And he goes, okay. And so they slam on the brakes, and he goes flying across <laughs> the thing on the floor. And I just started laughing because it was yeah. funny. And then I went, wait a second. I, I just out loud, I go, maybe I should check if he's okay before I start laughing at the six-year-old. Yeah. And the Good. woman across the aisle just starts dying laughing. She thought that was a funny <laughs> comment from a dad. And I went, all right. Everyone yeah. thinks I'm funny. See, now you're a comedian. And he was hurt, but he was fun. He, he brushed it off. I tough. actually, I had a moment with my Sunday school class where I, I always like to have them check in and everyone, I always ask them one thing and I have everyone go around the room and I've got like 20. So you're wasting time like I used to do when I well, taught the similar class. It's actually, it's actually, yeah, as a professional educator, yeah. it's a great way to get everyone in. The best part, I have to ask the kids, why do you think we just did that? And they go, well, you're trying to waste time, so you yeah. have less time to teach us. No. Like, well, yeah, but I'm trying to find out something about these but kids. I, so I found a really great question to ask. Oh, I want it? you to think about and tell everybody your earliest childhood memory. Oh, wow. Ooh. And then we went around the room. We've got like 20 kids. And they all told their earliest childhood memory. By the way, about 85% of them were really bad memories. Did anyone say? <laughs> Traumatic memories. Like tugging on the umbilical cord to get more no, apple juice. No, Nothing? Oh, no wow. one did that. No. Huh? That is interesting because most of my childhood memories that I've retained are the ones where I got in trouble or mm-hmm. I got hurt. Yeah. yeah that, that's, yep. So this one, this one boy says, I remember that I would never put my seatbelt on and my mom said, you better put your seatbelt on and I wouldn't put my seatbelt on. So my mom slammed on the brakes. <laughs> And I went flying, and he said I hit the console. Wow! And pushed and popped out four or three of my teeth. Oh! And it got really quiet, and then I'm like, "Wow, wow, that's, and that's a little harsh." No, I did it gently, just to bang his head against the padded seat in front of him. But it sounds like that car wasn't. Yeah, no. See, no. that sounds like karma. Never met mom. Her. Never met her for the mom. That sounded like karma. And yeah. when we get to the MT News, don't let me forget, oh, I have a story about karma. He's back to karma. The karma must have really messed him over this week. Karma's a chameleon. Yeah. So maybe that's why you've never seen her. Yeah. You know, I may have seen her, but I didn't see her. Hmm. 
Let's uh, speaking of chameleons, let's get to the news now with Terry South. Terry, what should we be paying attention to? Voters want to hear President Donald Trump talk about health care and the economy at this week's State of the Union address. When asked which issues they wanted Trump to address in Tuesday's speech, the largest percentage of voters said it's very important for Trump to discuss improving the health care system. Fifty-nine percent. Well, and, yeah. I mean, you can't just tear down the system, right? You need to improve it. Right. And followed by improving the economy and creating jobs at 58%, according to a Politico morning consult poll, combing uh, the, those who said it was very and somewhat important. More than four in five voters want to hear Trump's plans for health care on Tuesday. The poll taken at the one-year mark of Trump's term also found that voters want to hear about fighting terrorism at 54%. They say that's very important for the president to discuss this issue, that issue in the speech also. Wow, because that's tomorrow night, right? Tomorrow night. And he'll be able to then unleash all of his proposed ideas. I mean, if so instead of just reacting to Congress, this oh, is right. where he could lead them and say, he could. I want an infrastructure bill. Right. I want... We're going to Mars. We're going to fix... Yeah. yeah. Stuff like that. That's great. They've done that in the past and then never did anything with it. Yeah, them, right. But, yeah, but it's a neat did. moment. Uh, he'll talk probably about his infrastructure because he's talked about that when the night he won yeah. the election. Oh, and yeah. of course, that probably will never happen this year because, you know, got to get Democrats on board. Right. During an interview with former Apprentice winning winner Pierce Morgan. Did you know Pierce Morgan won The Apprentice? I didn't know that. I did not uh, know that. Donald Trump uh, said that his early morning tweet storms sometimes come directly from his bed in the White House. Hmm. Uh, Morgan told Trump that every morning the whole world was waiting for him to wake up and start firing off his social media messages. He goes, it's a crazy situation, Trump admitted. Oh, Although on. he said he was the, uh, the o- it was the only way for him to battle the so-called fake news. If I don't have that form of communication, I can't defend myself, he says during the interview. IT, ITV network, if you want to see this on probably YouTube or something. Oh, Morgan asked, are you actually lying in bed with your phone while work, working out how to wind everybody up? Trump ignored the implication that he was an elite Twitter troll, but admitted that he was sometimes still tucked up in bed when he started. Well, perhaps sometimes in bed, sometimes at breakfast or lunch or whatever. He'll do it anywhere. Trump said he usually posted the messages himself outside of his busy office hours. We know those to be called executive time. Well, some people will listen to books on tape or soothing sounds yeah. in order to go to sleep. He just sends out tweets. Yeah. Um, so he goes to bed. I promise, though, if he wants to ensure that there is a landslide victory for himself mm. and the GOP, right? all he has to do is in the State of the Union say, I will hereby not be tweeting anymore mm. until wow. December of 2017. 18. 2018, yes, because that's the, the year we are in. Yes. <laughs> and if he would do that, landslide victory. Really? Yeah. Well, Trust me. How else is he going to like endorse people across the country when he doesn't want to travel past the Mississippi? He can have his people tweet, but he would refrain from tweeting. And then I promise all the independents and half the liberals huh. would vote for him. Okay. It would be a great moment. Sweep. In other news, a bill in uh, the New York State Assembly will soon, they'll soon vote on a piece of legislation that, if passed, would stop youth football leagues and schools from allowing kids to play tackle football. Wow. Authored by uh, New York State Assemblyman Michael uh, Benedito, the bill is called the John Mackey Youth Football Protection Act, named after an NFL star player who died after suffering symptoms of CTE, which is the degenerative brain disease. Yeah. Specifically, the bill would bar any child under the age of 13 from playing tackle football. The bill has no co-sponsors in the state Senate. 
and as a result is unlikely to pass, despite the fact that research linking long-term brain disease is repeated, head trauma is solid, and there is no there is plenty of reason to believe that young players suffer the consequences of repeated hits. And we've had research yeah. that already have shown this, but no one's but really that, confident to get on board with what's But here football. we are in a, probably a more liberal Senate of New York. It's starting to happen. And again, it doesn't mean you need like major concussions. It just is repeated head trauma. It's the small hits. Yeah, the which small hits. in Little League football is just the that's, whole game. That's all done in the summer during two a days. Right. Because <laughs> you're that's learning all the how damage to you need. Right. So, yeah, I, it's not going anywhere, but you'll start seeing more and more of those pop yeah. up as people keep worrying about their kids. And, and what what's might happening. be better is instead of legislating it, parents could just choose not to do it. And they are. The enrollments are down 20% and since 2011. flag football so. should get more and more popular. There you go. I think you could teach a lot of skills yeah. and then introduce tackling later on if that's where they want to go. And as Jeff and I have discovered, you could play taser football, which is uh, double-handed, two-below tasers on your hands. Okay. When two hands touch, zzz, you shock the person, they are immobilized huh. and carried off the field. I still think it should be a pie fight. We have not been able to see eye-to-eye on this. Yeah. You got too much pie on your eye. Finally, a freak accident nearly took the life of a 13-year-old boy in Maryland last week when a six-inch screw entered his skull. Oi, oi, ouch. Darius Foreman was building a treehouse Saturday when he fell from a branch, knocking over a five-foot-long wooden board, which came down on the top of his head. Uh, his mother, this is it from his mother recounting this, an x-ray from Johns Hopkins Hospital where the boy was airlifted show a portion of the screw lodged bet- right between the two halves of the brain, yeah, threatening to tear the largest channel that drains blood and other fluids from the brain. Injury to this part of the brain would be catastrophic, according to the surgeon, uh, Dr. Alan Cohen. He was a millimeter away from having himself bleed to death, the doctor oh, said. Oh, wow. Because I, uh, I absolutely panicked, his mother said. It was very scary, one of the scariest things I've ever been through, because the board was still attached to him by the screw in his head. Fire rescue couldn't fit the boy into the ambulance. At first, so they used a family saw to cut the board down from five feet to two feet. Oh, man. Then, even even then, they still had trouble fitting him into the first of two helicopters that came to airlift him to the hospital. Uh, they're on pins and needles. You can yeah. see they're worrying about bone and blood clots. And bah. there was two-hour surgery involved in all this. He had the board in there a total of about seven hours, his mom said. Uh, the doctor said they got the call. It doesn't matter who's on call. You both, he, was, uh, the, he says your husband and wife, they both wake up because yeah. you know, the phone rings yeah. all that. Uh, so she went first. And, and uh, so they, the doctors got there. They cut the bolt and then the board office head, leaving the end of the screw for Cohen's team to go in and try to remove it. Oh. Right, and that's where you're like lefty Lucy. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Make sure you go lefty. He's a lucky kid. The operation was a success. Foreman was discharged Thursday. He kept the wow. screw as a memory of his close call. That was his 13th birthday, apparently too. Oh, Foreman said he learned a valuable lesson that they never build a tree fort. No, Whew. that may not be the lesson. But that's what he's going with. Make sure you. Hire a professional. But that's the problem. One little weird accident, and the next thing you know, you got a board screwed to your head. Right. That's just... By the way, I've been on scenes like that with rebar or whatever, and you have to then mobilize. I mean, you have to, like, stabilize this wood, and, I mean, it's a nightmare. Because it moves any little bit. It could cause a huge problem. And then then he's just a millimeter away. You would think that... I don't know. I, I would have left the screw intact, and then you just hook the drill on the other end and make sure you reverse it out. There's really no— I mean, I'm not a doctor like that, but 
I don't know if that's really the most important part. But, I mean, the, the bigger thing is you got a board in the operating room too. Yeah. Boy, that's a lucky boy. I'm telling you. How do you follow up that story? Karma. Karma. Never met her. So have you ever sold anything online, something no. used that you just don't want anymore? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have. I so have. My family has. We've been selling a lot of things. And, you know, you'll always see in the description uh, $20 OBO. The OBO stands for or best offer. Yeah. So assuming there's somebody out there that wants to pay more than what you're requesting, then you'll give it to the person that will pay more. Right, right. right. So I uh, responded to a text with, well, this person's willing to pay 40 How interested are you? And the person's response to me was, karma, good luck with life. Oh, wow. How am I supposed to take that? Well, I think they obviously think your name is karma, first of all. Which is wrong. <laughs> Not even close. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Cause... So now I need to be looking over my shoulder. Yeah. Because this person mm-hmm. thinks I was doing a bad thing. Yeah. So the idea of karma, whatever goes around, comes around. They, they thought that this wasn't a bidding process. They thought that this was just you were going to live up to your word and it would be $40. So, yeah, now I have to worry about bad karma coming my way. Yeah. It, I mean – but I don't. I just, can't. I don't need people sending bad karma my way. Well, but no. But they didn't. Nobody sends it. See, karma would suggest that you created the bad vibration out into the ether sphere that would then come back to you in a in a rebound effect and do something. I don't know. Maybe you'll end up building a you know a treehouse and a screw will Ugh. get somehow lodged into your skull. Well, I'm not at fault here, right? I just do. No, what... you are. You are. Oh. You broke the karma rule. Hmm. Speaking of karma, maybe there's karma involved in this story. Okay. It's kind of wacky. So police in the eastern German city of Dresden say two men suffered minor injuries after backing into one another in two consecutive accidents. Here's how it went down. Tuesday, a 49-year-old man pulled into a disabled parking place, then reversed out after noticing his mistake. So is he's it, doing is, the noble is thing. The, is the parking place disabled or is it a, disa- a place for disabled, for disabled people. people? Okay. Yes. Uh, for I disabled that people. Noticed he shouldn't be parking there, started backing up. Yeah. As he backed out, he accidentally hit a 72-year-old man. No. Oh, ow. Who was walking behind the car, injuring him slightly. After the two men exchanged information for a report... The older man got in his car and backed out of his own parking spot, hitting the younger man in the process <laughs> and slightly injuring him. Ah, I shouldn't be laughing. That's not funny. Yeah. So maybe there's some karma involved there. Like if you hit a 72-year-old man, a 72-year-old man is going to yeah. hit you back. The difference is the 72-year-old can say, well, I didn't see him. I'm old. I didn't even see the young man that just hit me. And by the way, some would just say that's passive aggressive. It's just, you know, it's payback. You know, that is a point. That is a point. I didn't say a good point or a bad point. It is a point. I'm just a little scared. I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen to me in no, the coming you, days and weeks. I'd watch it when you're walking in the parking lots now. Is that a threat? Are you? No, the, it's not a threat. It's a promise. Are you the deliverer of the bad karma? No, but I am the only person in this room that has backed into somebody lately. Hmm. Here's another Twice. story that really hurt. Yeah. So there's a Las Vegas man who was arrested Sunday after allegedly striking his daughter in the face with a jar of cheese dip. 
No way. Yeah. What kind of guy does that? So he's 50 years old. Alfonso Stanley, he told police he hit his adult daughter because she was trying to eat his food. Oh, boy. Stanley's daughter told police she tried to replace the food after her father said it was his, but he attacked her and slammed a glass jar of Doritos nacho cheese dip Uh into the left side of her face. It really hurt. I'm going to have a lump there, you idiot. You fight like a woman. (laughs) Wow. Interesting. That was audio from the event. So uh, Stanley was taken into custody shortly after. Yeah. Listen to this. According to the report, Stanley told police that he hit his daughter with a jar because it was the first thing he saw. Yeah. He said he would have hit her with his cane if the jar hadn't been there. And I'm thinking, what, what if he would have seen other things? Like, what if he had seen, like, a jar of mustard first? What? Or like a wine bottle. Oh, he'd uncork it for her? <laughs> what a nice gentleman. Well, he he also has a cane, so it's not – he must have some impairment where he can't just hop up and, you know, get in her face. So instead he's just got to grab whatever's there. So he grabbed the cheese and threw it. What if there was a, a bottle of glue? <laughs> That's not a bottle of glue. <laughs> That's that that glue it will needs be, some process. It will be someday. By the way, that's a but you don't no matter what, you don't throw anything at anybody. You just you just try to talk to her and say, "Hey, let's not be this way." By the way, I don't know if you heard too. This um has started a brand new movement. Really? Yeah, it's called the hashtag #cheese2 mm. movement. So everybody now that's been hit by some form of cheese is now starting to uh well, tell their story. I think I think what the man was really trying to tell her is that you shouldn't waste cheese. Waste wasted cheese is a bad thing. In fact, I think you mentioned a PSA. I think we've got it. Yeah. When it comes to cheese, please make every slice count. Welcome back, folks, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's fairly common to come across younger members of generations who who are rejecting the religion of their fathers, right? The religion that's kind of been handed down from generation to generation. Not only are people moving away from religions of their childhood, but atheism has become a frequent substitute. And here to talk to us about it and better understand What's going on with this crisis of faith is a professor here at Brigham Young University. Scott Braithwaite is an associate professor here and has researched the psychology behind this generational shift. Um, He is an associate professor of psychology at BYU. Uh, Dr. Braithwaite, thank you so much for your time and being with us today. Thank you for having me. Is it? um, Talk to us just about the general data. I mean, are younger generations... uh, Falling away at the at the numbers that that we hear, and is it is it is is it a crisis of faith? Um, I think that the answer to that is a little bit more complicated because I I think that you do see some activity rates going down, but what you find more and more is that the rising generation, um, often we talk about millennials, they tend to want to experience religion a little bit differently than their parents have, and I think sometimes what we see is this mismatch between the way that they want to experience religion and the way that it has been offered in the past. And oh, okay. So it's kind of how we, it's how they see. manifest it. 
I think so. I think that they're looking for something that's just a little bit different. And oftentimes, I think that the the way that we've done it historically doesn't feel like a good fit for younger people. Hmm. And does some of this? I mean, there are there have been a lot of stories of institutional. Uh, abuse um, in some organizations and the fear of an oppression of of some religion is, is that what's also impacting their view or uh, did did just kind of this freer thinking younger generation come first? Yeah, that's hard to say. I think maybe from a broader like thinking about you know all of North America perspective, there could be some of that, but I think that the generational shift is not so much rooted in their knowledge of this or that. Um, thing, but more about their their lived experience of of what life feels like and what they're looking for when they start to ask, is there something more out there? Hmm. You um, last year in August, you participated in what's called BYU Education Week, where you you took on a lot of this information. And um, one of the things you talked about is is this idea of stages of faith that was described by James Fowler, who the was a Methodist minister. Talk about. The stages of faith, and maybe one of the problems might be the stage that a lot of the a lot of us fall into that might actually drive us to fall away from our belief system. Yeah. So, uh, as you mentioned, James Fowler was a Methodist minister, but also a professor at Emory University, and he had a background in psychology. I'm a psychologist as well, and I think that's where I started to develop an interest in this. The the stages of faith model goes through the different stages that all people go through, and. It's interesting because when I describe it, people ask, wait, is this specifically a Mormon thing? And it's not. It's huh. something that he, he saw across a lot of different faith traditions. The first two are, are a little bit less informative. They have to do with children growing up and starting to believe in the idea that there is justice and reciprocity in the universe. Stage three, though, is where James Fowler says many people um, tend to spend a lot of time. He says many religious people indefinitely stay in stage three. Uh, stage three is marked by a couple of features. Um, one is this idea of conformity to authority. People in this stage are looking for authoritative statements, and to a large extent, they want to turn their religious life into rules. Hmm. They want to find out what's the right answer, what's the wrong answer. They want to make sure they're doing the right thing. There's a very strong cultural element to religious life. It's very much about who's in and who's out. Hmm. Oftentimes, the world tends to present itself in black and white terms, and most things are seen as us, we're the good guys, the world is the bad guys, and any conflicts with one's beliefs are ignored at that stage because they're afraid of anything that could be inconsistent. So it's very easy to dismiss disconcerting information as just anti-Christian, anti-Mormon, or whatever. And, and again, I'm not here to say that stage three faith is necessarily a terrible thing, but I think that people who are in stage three are at a higher risk to experience a crisis of their faith if they happen to come across disconcerting information. And so it, there, are, there are certain, I think, advantages and disadvantages. To yeah. Well, I stage. mean, if, you're, if your witness, if your belief system is based on conformity to authority and then authority, your authority figures do something wrong or uh, inappropriate, then all of a sudden you would have a faith crisis because your leaders aren't leading you appropriately. That's exactly right. This Again, the overlap here is with the concept that psychologists are interested in called perfectionism. And it's perfectionism applied to a religious institution. In stage three, we very much think 
the the leaders of the church, the religious institution, is absolutely flawless. Hmm. And the fact that all religious institutions on earth are mediated through people makes that complicated because there tend to be human fingerprints on even divine work. Oh, interesting. And so if I was raised in a family where my parents were very religious um, uh, and their religiosity was very much based in this stage three, then it might be easier for me to think, ah, oh, yeah, well, no one's perfect and people make mistakes. And so is it, that would that would that make it harder? I mean, easier for me to want to just move on from faith? I think so, because if faith becomes um, an all or nothing thing, I think anytime you set up an all or nothing belief, it always ends up being nothing. Yeah. Because nothing can really hold a candle to this idea of perfectionism except for Jesus himself. And since, again, most of our religious experiences are uh, in the world of people, uh, it's very difficult for anybody to live up to that standard. So if we put that standard up as the uh, benchmark that has to be achieved for a religion to be true or good, um, we're often going to be disappointed. Oh, fascinating. So what ends up, what does stage four and five look like? So stage four is interesting um, in that if you think about it, it is a step forward, but oftentimes it doesn't feel like a step forward to people who are in it. James Fowler would say that stage four is where we experience a crisis of faith. And this is where, to some extent, the the simple stories that we had before no longer work. Hmm. We had a very simple story about the way that faith and the world and people and and God operated. And because that no longer works, it, it throws people into this state of chaos where they're wondering if anything is true. Not only is anything true, but is it possible for me to know truth from error. I just don't even know everything that I've relied on up to this point now doesn't work for me. Um, and in that situation, sadly, what what my experience often is, is that you'll find that people will then jump out of any kind of faith tradition, hmm. but they'll tend to keep a very stage three perspective. The difference is they kind of switch teams. The church that used to be the good guy is now wholly bad and has nothing good to offer. They, they stay in a very black and white mindset. The reverse swing, yeah. Right. Um, and so in that phase, it's, it's very easy for people to become cynical, but now rigid unfaithfulness is the worldview. Holy cow. And you see this even with a lot of uh, the movement of um, gay marriage and other, you know, kind of really heated issues that are in the news, you might see that creates this crisis of faith. Like, ah, yeah. I love I love my fellow brothers and sisters that uh, that are gay, and I want them to be integrated into the church, and yet, but it creates the crisis, and you're saying what might happen in that stage is many would then just quit and immediately take their kind of cultural version and conformity version, but just go against the church. Right. I think that that's true. I think that when, when we have a hard time reconciling two things that seem opposed to each other, but both are good, loving people and obeying commandments, we have a really hard time reconciling that when we have a stage three perspective. We think we have to pick a team. We think we have to say, I'm on this or that side. Interesting. It's a very difficult thing to do. Which, I, which ironic, ironically seems different than something that Christ was teaching. I think uh, so. I think able to right. do both. Yeah, I think so. He he was the perfect example of somebody who 
seemed to live a life that was loving and caring and lifting other people. Um, and, and he was often very critical of people who reduced religion to rules. He wasn't often uh, sharp with his words or with his actions, but he reserved that sharpness for people that he perceived as being hypocritical mm. or people who he felt like were kind of neglecting the weightier matters of the law and focusing on small stakes issues. We're speaking with Dr. Scott Braithwaite, who is a professor, associate professor of psychology here at Brigham Young University, and he's talking to us about the psychology behind the the generational shift toward religion, the view toward religion. Uh, We're talking about some work he's done on the crisis of faith, and today he's talking about these five stages um, of faith that were described by uh, James Fowler, a Methodist minister at Emory University. And so far, We've talked about stage three is kind of a conformity to authority, very cultural. Stage four is where we have a crisis of faith. Um, What would five look like? Well, here's where I, if it's okay, I kind of want to introduce into this idea or into this uh, discussion what I mean when I talk about cultural Mormonism versus doctrinal Mormonism, because I think it relates to to the difference between these stages here. And does it relate to other churches as well? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as someone who's LDS, I think that this is something I can speak more confidently about, but um, I certainly think it applies. So when I talk about cultural Mormonism, I'm not just talking about that, you know, Mormons like to drink Sprite and, you know, <laughs> Jello. things like that. Yeah. Um, it's more that this is the version of belief that comes from spending a lot of time in the church, from conversations with your peers, uh, church lessons, LDS popular culture and press, just growing up LDS, you get some ideas in your head. And I'm not saying that all these ideas are incorrect, but I also am saying that oftentimes they're more cultural than they are doctrinal. Um, Doctrinal Mormonism, I would contrast that as being the scriptural canonized theology of our church. I think that cultural Mormonism tends to focus more on rules, whereas doctrinal Mormonism focuses on principles. Mm -hmm. I think cultural Mormonism focuses on being right, and I think doctrinal Mormonism focuses a little bit more on trusting God. I think that cultural Mormonism is rooted in group identity, about who's in and who's out, uh, who is okay to be here and who is not. And I think doctrinal Mormonism is rooted in Christ and how he invites everybody to come unto him. And for me, the the overlap between the two, because there certainly is overlap, may not be as important as the rigidity of cultural Mormonism versus the dynamic vibrancy of doctrinal Mormonism, um, in that it, it's, it's wild, it's, it's exciting, it's vibrant, it, it helps us to feel closer and connected to God, whereas the other, I think, feels very constraining. And I think that uh, stage three faith is often marked by an approach to religion that is a little bit more rule-governed um, and easier to, to become disillusioned with. Hmm. So uh, I think it's easier if you're very culturally Mormon and, and believing that there, there's a right and wrong answer to every single question that you will ever be posed becomes really difficult to not jump into stage four. So stage four, as I mentioned, um, it's very easy to become disillusioned. I don't think this is a new thing, though. I think that through you know all of religious tradition, having a crisis of faith is pretty standard. There are certain psalms uh, that I think are exclusively about the the writer, perhaps David, just saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how to move forward. The book of Ecclesiastes, I think, is a big crisis of faith. So this isn't a new thing. This isn't something that's unique to millennials, but something that I think we're seeing more and more today. Stage five faith, though, is a little bit different. It's a perspective that's a little bit more comfortable with complexity and mystery. Hmm. 
in some sense, we've come to realize that faith really is faith. Faith does not mean that we have a perfect knowledge of God. Faith is that we have a, an assurance or a hope of things which we believe to be true, but for which we lack evidence. It requires faith. And it tends to view religion from a bigger perspective than a set of rules and an us-versus-the-world mentality. Um, it's more interested in trying to stay close to God, trying to um, love others as Christ did. Wow. It's so fascinating. Um, this was, my, by the way, my church lesson, my Sunday school lesson to 17-year-olds was all of this, Scott, without having any of this. Mm. It's so frustrating. You've got to get books out, left and right. <laughs> well, James Fowler has a great book on all of this, but it's, it's pretty dense. <laughs> yeah, I bet it is. That's why we need your help kind of sorting through it. Um, but what can we do as parents? What can I do with my kids if I um, want to try to get them more? I mean, I, I guess the faith crisis is inevitable, um, just with life, I would assume. What would we do? What can I do to make sure that we can move them more to kind of a faith level five, uh, where they can, where our kids and our family and people can be more comfortable with the chaos that is inherent in life? I think it has to do with um, again focusing on this idea of true principles. You know, Joseph, when he was asked how he governed such a big body of people so effectively, he said, "I teach them correct principles." and let them govern themselves. It's very easy, though, I think, especially when kids are younger, to try to simplify things and to turn them into rules. And, and there are certain rules that I think are really helpful. I think it's important, though, if we're going to teach a rule, that we help people understand the doctrine that undergirds that rule. Yeah. That they don't think that, oh, well, I don't drink or smoke because people who drink and smoke are bad people. <laughs> more so that we believe that God has promised certain blessings if we're obedient to this word of wisdom that we have been given. And although other people may live their life differently, we certainly don't think they're bad people. They're wonderful people. Right. But we believe that this light and truth that we've received can bring extra blessing into our lives. So I think it's about how and, and teaching about the why when it comes to certain rules. And it's um, one of the things I'm seeing in my own world is that uh, we a lot of times we don't question we we don't discern the difference between a cultural or a doctrinal um, religion. I mean, our, our position being a cultural position or a doctrinal, and because we never question it, we think we are basing this on doctrine. Um, but they're like, you know, I mean, we every church has something that they would you know that seems sacrosanct, and yet. In reality, a lot of those things aren't even their doctrine. I completely agree. I think that it's so tempting to just let our religion become an oral tradition that is yeah. down um, just through the ether of society. But I think that we end up with the cultural version of Mormonism when it comes to that. Let me give an example that um, it can be a little bit touchy, but I, I think it's fair game. Um, I think if you asked people what their beliefs are about the theory of evolution— yeah. If you ask them from a cultural Mormon perspective, they would say, of course we don't believe in that. We believe in God. That There's no way anybody who believes in God could believe in that. Right. If you actually read what the Church teaches about this, including statements from the First Presidency, the official position is that the Church does not take a position on the theory of evolution. And then even more interestingly, if you keep reading, you'll find that some leaders have spoken against it. Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce R. McConkie, Ezra Taft Benson, and others have vocally spoken in support of it, like B.H. Roberts, James E. Talmadge, John A. Whitso, even Gordon B. Hinckley. Hmm. And to me, that's not evidence that we're somehow a house divided. It's evidence 
that we have this dynamic, vibrant religion where we have true principles and we're allowed to think and reason and um, reach some conclusions on our own that we, we don't need to try to fill in the blanks where the Lord has seen fit to remain silent um, with our cultural version of things. We need to study and learn and become invested in our religion and develop some thoughts and, and beliefs that perhaps are our own. And so I think that that's a healthy part of this process. And and really search back for the principle. I mean, that seems to be part of the key to this is find the principle upon which all of this discussion has been based, and you'll see that the principles can live even though the debate may be opposed. Absolutely. I think that that's absolutely true. That is powerful. Wow. Well, Scott, um, if this is a, a kind of a global issue, um, really what we might be seeing with some of these young, <laughs> these darn millennials, as they keep getting called, um, is they're just helping us open up our mind. And if we want to reach them, we're going to have to find a way to reach them on their principles. Yeah, absolutely. And full disclosure, according to some definitions, I think I qualify as a millennial. So oh, maybe. see, that explains it. <laughs> maybe this is why I have all these weird ideas. That's it. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that it's a really normal thing um, across the ages that uh, younger generations help us to think and to ask questions that maybe we hadn't thought to ask before. I think that's a healthy part of the process. I totally agree. Well, Scott, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for your great work here at Brigham Young University, helping us understand a crisis of faith, uh, truly. Um, again, you have to meet the people where they are. You have to understand them and move out of the difference and instead move into the principles. That's probably where you're going to find the power and you're going to find the ability to uh, – to truly create some unified uh, approach to our religion and our faith. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find your faith. BYU Radio. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Hey, welcome back. You know, um... Dr. Braithwaite brings up a really good point about religion or about life in general. You can always argue your faith. You can always argue your um, your how, how you've been harmed, whatever's happened to you in your life from your position, or you can argue it from your principle. And the, the downside is the minute we argue something from a position, then our positions tend to be at odds. So if you're talking about faith, the positions would be you need to go to church if you want to get to heaven. That's one position. Another position is, no, I would need to just be close to my God. Okay, that's, a, that's another position, right? But the minute you're arguing these positions, positions tend to just stay positions. And is it possible that we instead could get to the principle behind the position? What is the principle that really um, is the key? Because the irony of principles is that we would probably have more agreement on principle. Do you believe that people have should have agency? Yes. Do you believe that that there is structure and order in things? Yes. Do you? So we could believe in order and we could believe in agency and choice. And if we could do that, then that might actually explain why we take the positions we do. There is so much more power in teaching people correct principles and then allowing them, right, to govern themselves and learn from themselves and their principles. Oh, well, see, yeah, but somebody has to have the right principles. Well, sure. I mean, I guess the right practice around the principle, the ordained practice around the principle. But um, one of the keys I've just found, in fact, this came up in my fun little Sunday school lesson, 
is that if I don't teach the kids the principles and instead I just teach them the practices, but they don't know the why behind it, they don't understand the real deeper principle, we set them up for failure because eventually you're not going to be able to delineate every practice in every situation. Something is going to fall because it doesn't fit the model they learned. And I learned that when I left Utah and went to be a a missionary for my church uh, in Argentina in a different culture, a different country with different practices and different beliefs. There are principles. And so if we want to help our children actually secure their belief system, secure their faith, then your children will have to know the deeper principle, not just the positions. You go to church. You shut your mouth. You do what's right. Don't question anything. Um, questioning is probably very healthy if you understand uh, the, uh, the deeper principles as well. There is a, a principle of devotion. There is a principle of faith. And um, those principles still need to be understood and applied. And it'll actually amazingly – I see it every day when I work with people. The principle itself, even if you're going to teach a practice, make sure that you've taught them the principle – Show them that that very principle could also have five or six or ten or a thousand other iterations than the one that we're prescribing for you now. Um, Anyway, it seems to make sense to most of us, except not necessarily in practice. Understanding the principles, using the principles to live a principle-centered life, that's power. Power comes, by the way, in the principle, not the practice. The principle can be used a thousand different ways. The practice eventually may not be used in certain places. It may not be possible to be used. Anyway, just an idea from your coach right here on The Matt Townsend Show. We're back for more empty news from our empty news reporter, Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Jeffrey? So earlier in the program, we talked about the story about the kid that had the screw in the head, and then the screw screw became loose. So yeah. Uh, How about a scalpel in the gut? No, thanks. I'm full. Yeah. (laughs) I'm full. It's very nutritious. Uh, So this is, the man's name is Glenford Turner. He had a dizzy spell back in March. He went into the VA hospital in West Haven, Connecticut to see what was wrong. Yeah. Right? Right. So doctors ordered an MRI of the 61-year-old Army veteran's head, but the real answer, it turned out, was in his gut. According to a federal lawsuit he filed last week in U.S. District Court, Turner was halfway through an examination when a wave of severe abdominal pain hit him. The procedure was stopped, and doctors took a closer look. An X-ray image of his midsection showed, to quote the lawsuit, an abandoned surgical instrument in the plaintiff's body. Yeah. In other words, a scalpel. The same scalpel Turner and his attorney allege that was used in prostate surgery he underwent at the same hospital four years earlier. Oh, boy. So uh, his They're supposed to count those instruments. Yeah, I know. How do you you lose an instrument in somebody's body and not tell them about it? Well, you wouldn't know. How would you not know? Were you drugged too as the doctor? Well, you would assume that, you know, because you've got instruments coming left and right. Somebody's supposed to be counting scalpel one, scalpel two, scalpel three. Hey, where's scalpel yeah, four? Yeah, where's the inventory process? Yeah. Here's another one. How do you pronounce New Orleans? New Orleans. 
You say New Orleans. I say New Orleans. New Orleans. There's New Orleans. Yeah. There's New, New Orleans. Orleans. New Orleans. Yes. So many different ways to say it. If our listeners are uh, hearing this and they know how the correct pronunciation of New Orleans goes, please. We'd, let us, we'd love to know. Tweet us. That's right. At Dr. Matt Show. New Orleans. So uh, there, you know, this thing called Carnival mm-hmm. in New Orleans. Carnival. Again, and that's Carnival, not Carnival. Yeah, or Carnival. Carnival. Mm-hmm. So uh, they were picking up the trash for Carnival. And they discovered 93,000 pounds of uh, Carnival beads oh, were boy. among the 7.2 million pounds of trash what? pulled from clogged catch basins along a five-block stretch of a downtown parade route. That, five blocks. That's a lot of beads. 93,000 pounds of beads in five blocks. See, maybe it's time. Maybe we have too many beads. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe apparently the people don't want them. What do you replace? <laughs> That's a great. Point. Maybe you need biodegradable beads. There you go. That once you wear them and the, it rains a couple times, they all just turn into uh, cleaning soap. Or maybe beads that the birds could eat. Oh, let's li- feed the birds. Yeah, feed the birds like little birds, a bag. bird seed beads. It's only tuppence a bag. Yeah, except. Until you're wearing all these beads and a bunch of crows start landing on you, pecking at your neck. Yeah, but that's all part of the fun and craziness of Carnival. That would not be the weirdest thing you'd see there, I can guarantee no, you that. No, definitely not. But it would be one of the scariest. Well, yeah. Anyway, uh, fun stuff. Interesting lessons. Beads, folks. Come on. Feed the birds. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered, and we are ready for more enlightenment, more insight, more fun, and of course, this hour we've got uh, we'll be revisiting a, an interview we did about working out. Is it better to work out together, go exercise together, or to do couples therapy? Uh, Terry and his wife they work out together. My wife and I we just bought a membership to a gym, and a lot of times I will go watch her workout, <laughs> which has brought us very close together. I'll just sit on one of those like bikes that you like. And then I just – my legs get tired. So I just – a lot of times I watch TV right. on the bike mm. watching my wife run on a treadmill or whatever. There you go. At least you're out of the house, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, yeah. I, I go with my wife and then I, I'll uh, look up like gym pickup lines uh-huh. <laughs> and just try them out. On her, hold on. Can you find a, – a, like is there a website for gym yeah. pickup lines? There's also like – there's a YouTube series of a guy that just walks around and tries out pickup lines on yeah. women at the gym. You know which one probably doesn't work at the gym? What's that? You know where the weight room is? Yeah. I usually walk up and right I go, there. so uh, do you lift? <laughs> or whatever. You know, like yeah. we're doing a bench press. I go, so how much can you bench press? Well, that's pretty – that's pretty – and she's like, shut up. How about away. this one? How about like if you go up and you're like, can, can I borrow your towel? Yeah. <laughs> is that like not a good line? 
No, you can say, can I give you some tips? Women don't like that either. It's like, leave them. Hey, do you yeah. like, the yeah. worst thing on these YouTube videos is the women always have some sort of headphone. They're listening to music. They're trying and they, to ignore the and men. The, the guy goes up and, hey, hey, how you doing? You know, and they yeah. give him a smile and you can see him roll their eyes. What? You know? What do you want? Why are you making me get out of sync? But they usually, my wife will like team up with somebody else that's mm-hmm. more around, you know, the weight she's going to lift. And so when I do that, it gets a nice little laugh from the other people. And then I walk away and that's all I needed to do. Yeah. I'm sorry, but when I'm exerting all this energy running or exercising on an elliptical or lifting heavy weights, which doesn't have, happen often, let's be honest. But when that's happening, yeah, I mean, it romance could is probably the last thing on my mind. Oh, is it? Yeah. Well, but if you go to the gym enough, you wonder what's on people's minds. There's a lot of people that are just staring in the mirror at themselves, looking at their own bodies. <laughs> flexing and lifting weights. Yeah. What's going That's through weird. my mind is, I hate this. Why am I doing this? How many more minutes do I have? And yeah. I'm checking that time yeah, frequently. Yeah. My, my mind, it's always like, I wonder how much longer my stomach lining and wall can hold back my intestines from ripping through and creating a hernia. Whoa. That's what I'm thinking. Ooh. I know it's very technical. but Actually, the other thing going on in my mind is now, how long do I have to do this in order to eat nachos? <laughs> when does the pain end? Ah. Um, lots, of, uh, lots of insight here, folks, on the show. We try to, we try to help you every way we can. Now we've uh, covered the pickup lines at a, at a workout location, a gym. Uh, now we've got that covered. Let's get to the rest of the headlines with Terry Zouth. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? Many senators on both sides of the aisle are hoping President Trump uses his State of the Union address on Tuesday to urge legis- a legislative path forward for protecting immigrants brought to the U.S. illegally as children. If he made statements like we've heard at some other points, like with heart and a bill of love, that kind of thing would be very helpful, says Senator yeah. Jeff Flake. Okay. Uh, added uh, Senator Joe Manchin, I think for people to be able to see his compassion he has for these children would be very good. Lawmakers on both sides said Sunday indicated that Trump's demands to sharply cut back illegal immigration could prevent an immigration deal. Oh, wow. So they want to see the bill of love that he's talked about. Yeah, bring not us. Bring us the love. has come from it. So other news, it would be a bad idea for Congress, or it wouldn't be a bad idea for Congress to pass legislation protecting Robert Mueller. And yeah. Special counsel in general, in general, from unjustified firing by the president, Senator Susan Collins said on CNN's Hold on. State of Susan the Union. Susan Collins, a Republican, yes, but she's, she's in the middle. She's a moderate Republican. Yeah, but that's a very some Republicans would see her basically as a Democrat. She's a Rhino. Other Democrats would see her as a soft Republican. Yeah. But she's like, yeah, it'd be a good idea. We yeah, probably should maybe not? protect a guy like that. <laughs> it would uh, certainly not hurt to put that extra safeguard in place, given the latest stories about President Trump's canceled pl- uh, plan to fire Mueller last summer. Another prominent congressional Republican, Senator Lindsey Graham, likewise ar- ar- argued on ABC Sunday, it would be good to have legislation protecting all special counsels. Graham was the co-author of a bill requiring a three-judge panel to approve a special counsel's firing. Yeah. Not just the president going, yeah, I don't like him. Now now you can have a panel to s- sort through this and take a little longer, which would slow down the whole thing. Well, it's pretty slow to begin with. It's yeah. kind of feeling like it's but dragging I like, I mean, Yeah. Let's just get this thing done. I mean, people are assuming that since he's talked to, since Mueller's talked to, it feels like most of the senior staff that he's going to move on to the president. And that will be the end of it. Right. Unless he finds something. And then <laughs> right. they have to go investigate that. Yeah. And this could just keep going forever. And on and on and on. Last November, 
Strava a published a global heat map tracking the movements of the 27 million people who use its fitness service. Yes. Either through its app or devices like Fitbits over two years. A 20-year-old international security and Middle East expert finally took a closer look at the map this weekend after his father noted it basically shows where rich white people are. The, uh, <laughs> you know, who can afford the fitness tracker and the yeah. the software and the phone. I mean, you're in and some you're... desert in Afghanistan and right. there's this little group of well, people working we'll get out to together. That. What Nathan Russer found could have serious implications for the U.S. military and the safety of its personnel. Most areas in the U.S. and Europe are brightly lit by the path of joggers, cyclists, and such. Have you seen this map? Yeah. It's pretty fun to look it at. Is. But in the dark expanses of deserts and war zones, the few small spots of light appear to show U.S. locations of military facilities, both known and secret, and the movements of troops in and out of them. Sites that uh, experts believe are shown by Strava's map include suspected CIA base in Mogadishu, Patriot sites in Yemen, U.S. special operations base in Central Africa. Far from discouraging Strava using devices, the Pentagon handed out 2,500 Fitbits to personnel in 2013. They're like, we're, we're going to try to encourage you to be healthy and get out there and run. And Yeah. Yeah. So uh, all the while, Strava, this company that does this GPS service that uh, includes an option to turn off the data transmission service, it does appear that most of the soldiers are uh, not doing that. A lot of people are going to have to sit through lectures come Monday morning. The, the article came out Sunday, so they're thinking that this morning people show up to work and all of a sudden there will be a new guideline to turn that feature off on your fitness tracker. But I would bet like Special Forces uses that fitness information for their own health, right? Like they've yeah, got to learn to keep their heart rate at a certain thing. And, you don't need to track it. And, well, and, you don't need a GPS yeah. send it. So you yeah. can keep the Fitbit. Just yeah. turn off the just tracking turn off the ability option. to yeah. send it. And it's there. It's an option. They just didn't turn it off. Mm. Mm. Like Instagram just uh, up- updated their software, right? Yeah. And now there's a uh, – everyone is discoverable. Yeah. You, you're basically mm. transmitting where you are every time you post something unless Ugh. you go into the settings and turn that feature By off. By the way, another I reason I don't work out. I don't want everyone to know where I am. Wouldn't it be interesting if, let's say, like a health insurance company, and maybe this is already being done, where they they allow you to track that information and send it to them uh, in order to get incentives from them? Sort of like what Progressive does. You put that little tracker in your car, and it tracks what's going on in your car. Yeah, yeah. There's some companies that are either the company gives you incentive or the health insurance gives you incentive that way. Mm -hmm. The downside, of course... They could also see if you're not. Oh, yeah. Mm. Same thing in Wait the car. Wait till they just start tagging all of us now, like a bunch of I've cattle. Heard, I've heard this sort of discussion with people, and then the company comes out and says, oh, we're not going to penalize anyone. No. Like, we wouldn't, mm, why would right. we? Hey, we're but here to But the help. option's there, and that's the problem. Sure. What if I like tie it to the ankle of a sled dog or something? That's what you do. You got to find First, you find a sled dog. <laughs> then you it's tie it to ankle the ankle monitor. of the sled dog. Some prison and heist movie. That guy is really working it up <laughs> on the Iditarod. <laughs> Finally, a recent poll found the majority of Americans are worried about operating cars on the same roads as driverless vehicles. Really? Why? 64% of those surveyed said they are concerned about sharing the streets with driverless vehicles. This out of uh, Advocates for the Highway and Auto Safety, a, com- uh, a group. Huh. Uh, 34% of Americans surveyed said they were not concerned, while 2% of those uh, polled said they didn't know. Results of the survey come after the House last year passed a bipartisan self-drive act meant to speed up the development of driverless vehicles and provide a set of federal laws for the technology. 
Yeah. So people are concerned. Um, let's see if it says here. One of the most important findings of the poll is that nearly two-thirds of respondents are concerned about sharing the road with driverless vehicles. Today, we urge our nation's leaders to listen carefully to the concerns of Americans and the people to take an immediate course correction to address uh, significant safety shortcomings and serious public concerns sure. revealed in the poll. Um, so I don't know. It comes back that I think we just don't know what the technology is. I think we're calling it self-driving, and at the moment it's more just an advanced cruise control. Yeah. I would be very wary, especially if Dr. Matt was the one in the driverless car. I would be sleeping or watching a Netflix movie right. mm-hmm. while driving. You just proved my point. What I'm you're not supposed to do. And I'm already doing half of those things. <laughs> I won't tell you which half. But the funny thing about it, too, is when when they started introducing um, driver uh, – real automobiles along the same road as carriages, mm. they had the same complaints. Right. And now, you know, a hundred something years later, it's it's okay. Mainly, if Turned something's right. new, there's a group of people who don't like it. The problem is going to be, and it. we talk about it on the show. In about thirty years, the real problem is going to be if you will be allowed to still drive your own car, right? Hmm. Because you will be the hazard. Because all of the cars will be talking to each other. The problem is going to be you loan. You lone wolf out there just driving your car all nilly-willy, putting on your makeup Mm. and eating french fries while the rest of us are trying to sleep. I'd also be nervous if nowadays I drove up next to a horse-drawn carriage because, you know, they they do some business and you don't want to drive in it. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, it is a concern, I guess. It's not a concern I have. That's the sound of glue that we had last hour. Blue her. Hey, did you guys Sorry. know that wealthier <laughs> wow. people exercise more on weekends than those that aren't as wealthy? Huh. But they actually sit more during the week. Wait. I mean, well, yeah. So wealthier people, they have know, people with higher incomes, tend to be weekend warriors that get out there, you know, and they run their... Are they more likely to be cooped up in an office all week and they're just yeah. expressing their freedom? Yeah. Okay. But the the problem with it is so if you make less than $20,000 a year, mm. you're not going to exercise uh, as much as those that make $75,000. People that make 75000 a year were 1.6 times more likely to meet physical activity guidelines of 150 minutes of moderate exercise on the weekend. So again, it's that one threshold we talked about where if you're making about 70, it's 75, you're happy. Yeah. Because happy. You, you can afford free time. Whereas if you have twenty thousand a year, maybe you're looking for more opportunities to make some money because you can't really exist on twenty maybe, grand. Maybe maybe that's what you're doing is you're working on the weekend. What about Could somebody be? in the middle who refuses to work out on the weekend? Hmm. Is this? Are you saying this is you? Through kind of hypothetically. Hypothetically? Yeah. Let's just say it is. Okay, yeah. Then, for, for argument's sake. The problem is uh, the, these same people that are making more money would be sitting during the week more, mm-hmm. so they're still more likely to have problems. Hmm. So poorer people are less likely to exercise uh, on the weekends. Richer people exercise more on the weekends. But maybe – and I can't see in the data that poorer people don't – well, they do. They don't sit as much as the richer people during the week. Ah, because they were trying to get to work, they're trying to get stuff done. So I mean, I mean, if it was about your exercise, you're probably going to want to, I guess, 
be not rich or poor. You probably would want to make about fifty grand, somewhere right in between the two. So what would you do at that point? Just not work out or work mm-hmm. out less? Or I'd do what I do now. Nothing? I'd outsource it. Watch your wife? I like to outsource my workouts. Yeah. So just tell us how much we need to make to not have to work out on no, the weekend. The but is, still be happy. Yeah. No, yeah you Where's still, that happy spot? No, you still have to work out. <sighs> Rich or poor, you've got to work out. Oh, come on! I know. I know. In fact, my computer just validated it. <laughs> that was the right answer. It always bings when I have the right answer. Really? Yeah. Wow. So uh, that's good news, though, right? Because we want to work out. We want to be healthier. In fact, today I, w- I really was going to go on a walk, and then I realized that I don't have my walking shoes. Mm. And you didn't have your Apple Watch. And you don't walk if you don't get credit for it. No, right. I mean, I'm not the kind of – yeah. Who would do that? <laughs> The whole point of walking is the credit. Well, especially when you know that thousands of people are watching your numbers. Mm. You share your numbers? No, but apparently the GPS system, Mm. everybody's watching me on my GPS watch. And is this your your four goodness level or is it your five goodness level? Yeah, 5G. We learned earlier that 5G doesn't stand for goodness. I was convinced. I was sure it was the five goodness level for 5G, future 5G – cellular service. Mm. But then Terry brought up it's not. It's fifth generation. Generation. And that just spoiled all of our fun. Kind of ruined a lot. I think they have 5G in uh, Korea. Do they really? Yes. The best Korea. North Korea. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. That would be the... the, I don't know. (laughs) Because people refer to as best Korea, and I'm not sure if it's in the minds of the people of North Korea that we're referring to, or is best Korea South Korea, worst Korea be North Korea would be kind of what well, we're yeah, looking I think at. It, I mean, it seems obvious that the South Koreans would have more going for them. So are they best Korea? Yeah. I thought the West was the best. Best Western? No. <laughs> yeah, in, in South Korea, the, uh, the internet is infrastructure because... <laughs> They skipped the whole part where they're like we did, where we buried all the phone lines and all the electrical lines. They skipped that part, jumped right to the part where they had the internet. Yeah. And built up the infrastructure. And so they have much faster speeds than we have here, and they pay a lot less than we do but here. But notice the entire premise is that our happiness and the best of something is based on our wireless service. Well, yeah. I mean, that's nah, obvious. No, nah, but it's not. No, it is. It's on the kindness of, of people. What happens when you turn off the Wi-Fi at your house, man? Our, well, people fight. Yeah. And someone's going to die. Chaos. If you just have a good Wi-Fi signal, solid signal, they can watch some movies, everyone's happy. Yeah. See? It's it, a really good it's point, a, It's actually. a tip for life right there. Mm. Is that what that is? Yeah. If you don't have Wi-Fi, family not happy. Uh. <laughs> hey. Huh? Happy, happy, happy wife, I, happy life, I. I. Well, he kind of made that into something. Yeah. Well, he pushed really, really hard. (laughs) Any other headlines, any other news we should be covering to make sure that we elevate the game for all of our listeners? There's a high school in Boston. Yeah. The students have become more attentive and conversational in school. Excellent. What did they do? They took away their smartphones. They went old school. So the students hand over their smartphones each morning when they arrive. The phones are turned off, placed in pouches, and locked up for the day. Kangaroo pouches. That would be really like something. Maybe it was like a fundraiser, and the parents like put together kits or something for these pouches. But yeah. So the principal, uh, Odious Williams Jr., launched the program at the start of the school year. 
We've noticed in previous years that there has been an increase of cell phone use, cyberbullying, using phones in class under the tables. Huh. They are more engaged in cell phones than being present in the moment, the I principal says. I love that. Spanish teacher Erica Omoni, or O'Mahoney? Yeah, O'Mahoney. O'Mahoney! So she's Spanish teacher O'Mahoney. Loves the initiative and has noticed a difference in her students. That's I cool. have less problems losing students to their phones, text, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Many of these students have never lived without a portable cell phone, and the program has surprised them. It says, my friends have been talking to me a lot more Cool. instead of texting. Relating to their teacher. They weren't on their phones. They were actually con- conversing and talking with one another, says See, one of the students. This is this is what we need to do. But everyone's afraid, like, well, yeah, but you're going to then disable these kids because they're not going to know how to use their phones. What's the legality of this? Are, there, are they running into any issues with... It didn't say. Hmm. So they, the kids walk in the door, they hand them a bag, and they bag their phone. Bag your phone. And then where do they put them? They have secure lockers, they said. They just set them off to the side. They're all That's taken great. care of. That's great. And if a parent needs to get a hold of a child, you call the office, just like when I was in school. Was yeah. Fun. Get my son out of class, and they'll go get your son. Because guess where your kid is? In class. Mm-hmm. Right. And by the way, parents, you shouldn't be even interfering with your kids. And, and probably with the way cell phones are becoming more addictive to people, especially younger people, they're not going to go too far without that phone. Yeah, right. So are they going to leave school? Leave. No way. No, they need their phone. Well, some kids will because they yeah. just didn't remember they had a phone. Right. I didn't have a phone in high school, and I turned out just fine. Mm. Anyway, I think that's a great idea. That you didn't have a phone. No, I think that's a. I think I think our kids need more of that. And by the way, uh, parents, you can do the same thing at home if you want to. Maybe you should have a time when we just we just put the phones away and we converse. A lot of people do it at night before bedtime. Yeah, a lot of people do it around the dinner table, and just have everybody put them in a bag, and then everyone could have a little bag hook that you just hang all your phones on. Here's a question for you, though. And this is – I think this is important in this day and age. How long can I hold off on giving my kids a phone before I'm deemed a bad parent? Well, by the time they're 30, (laughs) your kids ought to have a phone. But nowadays, you'll see that it's hard because by the time they're 12, 13, 14, the social peer pressure they have – is immense. That's the thing. It's not just you. It's, you have to worry about them and what That's kind right. of... Well, and their yeah. social life. All the kids are going to organize their social life using a phone. So if you don't have a phone, speaking of phones, if you don't have one, your kids could socially, they're going to argue, mom, I'm not even being included anymore. But don't you think maybe other kids would perceive you as like this dark and mysterious, attractive stranger that didn't have a cell phone? No. People no. always... People are always attracted to things that are mysterious. Yeah. No, that's true. Uh, but not, not with phones. In this case, you're just a weirdo. <laughs> you're just a weirdo without a phone. Man, your dad's a weirdo. Oh, I know. Uh, so, yeah. In fact, we, we probably ought to have a guest on to talk about what age we ought to be uh, you know, unleashing the Kraken, the AT&T Kraken or the T-Mobile. What do you T-Mobile. say? I say, I say 12. I would ha- let them have access to a phone. Actually, even younger than that, 10, because we don't have a home phone anymore. So we have we had a floater phone that the kids could use to take to the neighbor's house so that we could get a hold of them. 
But hmm. by 12, I would probably have a phone that they can access. Maybe. What about – because clearly texting would be more of an issue than calling because none of these kids are calling each other. Right. So maybe give them a phone where they can use it to call people, but they can't text people. Yeah, but the dilemma then you run into is they – all of their friends are texting and there is a social world with a phone. That's different than not having a phone. And you but, will impair your child. But why are we fueling this movement that's going on well, where kids are becoming less social by but, just texting each other? Yeah, but so th- then it would just say you have to have other rules, right? So other rules would be, but we then learn to turn them off and we learned when you're home, they go away. And by nine o'clock, all the phones are off. For every text message you send, you have to make three calls to grandma. Wow. How about that, would, that? Well, that would terminate texting. <laughs> Probably tick off grandma. That's yeah, a lot of, like, lot of Would you stop calling me? I'm so sick of you kids always calling me. We're just doing what mother said. Ah, oh, crazy stuff. Hey, straight ahead, we're going to be talking about what is better for your marriage. A workout with your partner, you know, where you go to the gym, sweat to the oldies, or couples therapy. We'll discover straight ahead. You've probably heard of uh, dozens of methods that couples uh, use, like couples therapy and relationship strengthening tactics, from taking more time to your significant with your significant other to planning your weekly activities together. When you think of strengthening your relationship and your significant other's perception of you, the last thing you think of is probably having them see you in a dirty and sweaty workout room. But maybe that is what it takes. A few months ago, I spoke with licensed clinical social worker Kelly Kitley about how working out with our significant other might be as good as couples therapy. I began the interview by talking to Kelly about the research showing that working out with your partner is almost like couples therapy. Well, I like to say it's an adjunct to couples therapy. I think there are great benefits of it in supporting overall health for couples. Um, And certainly it's a great place to start. I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist and the idea of doing positive exercise together can also incorporate healthy living and healthy eating and supporting one another. Um, And there are just so many great benefits for Mm. couples to work out together. Talk talk about some of those benefits. Um, I know one of them is just simply the camaraderie, the togetherness. Yeah, absolutely. It, it It is an activity. And so oftentimes couples, um, you know, will make decisions to go out for dinner together or to go see a movie, more of these sedentary um, activities. And so there is a connection that happens um, for couples and just being able to support one another and achieve goals together and really feeling like a partnership. Mm. And I mean, really, how how rare is that many times with couples like you said it's easier to go to a movie where we can disconnect from each other but uh working together on goals is and actually helping each other through the goal that that right there that's kind of it seems like the reason we got together well that's what i'd like to to have couples focus on remembering what brought you together and the time that you enjoyed Spending together. Oftentimes I'm seeing couples where there is a disconnect in the marriage and they report feeling like they're living like roommates or living these parallel lives. And here, 
um, being able to work out together with a common goal of being healthier or losing weight or getting stronger. Um, it's a common shared interest, which can just increase so much positivity within the family dynamic, really, as well, if there are children involved. Talk about the chemical side of this. One of the benefits of working out, I know, is the the chemistry that's that comes with it. How does the chemistry of the workout, you know, affect the chemistry of the relationship? Well, exercise in general increases mood, and oftentimes, um, if couples are working out together, you know, they're um, benefiting by um, increasing serotonin and um, increasing endorphins, and so that brain chemistry just increases positivity, um, which can help couples have a shift in the way that they're looking at the relationship as well. And rather than focusing on the negative, they're choosing um, to focus on the positive. Hmm. Does it, um, I, I just, you know, I look at like going on a walk with my wife it gives you the time. I mean, you got to drive there. Then you're there. You do your work. If you go to a gym and you work out together, um, mm-hmm. it gives you some time together, but some time apart. But it also it it's we're both working on the same thing, and yet you're kind of you're 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 seeing your partner in a different light. I'm seeing my partner, you know, struggle and work. Mm-hmm. What is that? I mean, that's attractive to see. Not, I mean, it's not always pretty to see each other sweating, <laughs> but it is attractive to see your partner pushing themselves. Oh, sure, and it and it helps um, to motivate the other person as well. I mean, um, there is a natural tendency to want to help somebody that you're seeing struggle, but also to be able to see the positive outcome from that struggle and really. Um, verbally validate that as well as physically in in finding your partner more attractive physically or um, certainly being able to maybe feel more comfortable in different clothing. And, you know, there's a whole shift that happens with just starting with something that basic um, as taking a walk together and all the benefits of the other behaviors that come along with that, you know, maybe then coming home and cooking a healthy meal and, and being on the same page and supporting one another. Do you, I mean, this, it's so kind of natural. And in fact, I'm going to bet many couples started their relationships working out or being more active together, doing things together. What do you think it is about us that that has these things that work, that got us to fall in love? Mm-hmm. Why do they fade? Why don't we get back to them as easily? Because we're so busy. Um, everybody is so busy in their career, in child rearing, in personal growth. And oftentimes some of, you know, I talk in, in session with a lot of my couples about getting back to the basics and removing some of the chaos and feeling overwhelmed with life and being able to take a time out and, um, something as concrete as working out together and having concrete results as well as emotional results, um, physical results. Um, and, you know, I think we just forget yeah. and, and we overcomplicate things. Um, so being able to tap into things that, that, that couples found a connection together with, it's oftentimes a place I'll start. What, what did you used to enjoy together that you're not doing anymore? Yeah. Um, 
And sometimes couples will say, you know, we used to exercise. We used to go for bike rides. We'd go for walks. Um, we'd go to the gym together. But now I think there's a lot of tag teaming, um, especially when there are kids involved. Mm. Um, you go do this while I go do this and kind of the passing of the torch rather than doing it together. And and it, I mean, it, I've also found like they know what they used to do. And if you ask couples, um, what do they know they could be doing now that would probably help them? A lot of times they know also that they could be working out together. They, they, they know what they could do, too. I want to have you teach us how we can change the behaviors. How do we change human behavior to do what we our mind? Like I might be thinking, I need to go on more walks with my wife. I need to be doing more with my wife. But then it's, you know, my mind gets in the way. My head gets in the way. My justifications get in the way. I want your help helping us change. Uh, we're speaking with Kelly Kitley. If you go, uh, you can go check out her website, Kelly. Let's get there. KellyKitley.com. K-E-L-L-E-Y-K-I-T-L-E-Y.com. And thanks for walking us through the uh, the workout therapy. I mean, there is power. There's chemistry. There's connection. There's, you know, the cooperation that takes place when we work out with our spouse and we have similar goals. Um Anything else we're missing on why working out with our spouse is such a therapeutic thing? Well, the one thing um, that I did want to touch on as well is the component of a a marriage that makes a relationship, that relationship so different from any other relationship is the sexual chemistry as well. And um, oftentimes when I'm seeing couples in, in, therapy, they're reporting that they haven't been intimate in quite some time. And some of the reasons for that is disconnect in the marriage or body image issues. And so when we talk about the benefits of working out together, that can also increase sexual intimacy in the marriage, which is a great benefit. I mean, because the chemistry of and the dopamine and the adrenaline and all of those chemicals that are flying in the body are also uh, part of the same chemistry that that is uh, aroused in in sexual rea- in sexual relations. Oh, absolutely! And so even the um, the engagement of sexual activity can create that same kind of chemical release that exercise um, creates as well. So if you're exercising together and you're having sex, yeah, then the benefits are just multiply. It's so true, though, isn't it? And it's, I mean, and that's why it's so, I mean, it's kind of just so natural. Sometimes it becomes a more natural therapy that, uh, and I've even found with clients, the minute you start talking about it more overtly, it becomes more real to them, where if you just sneak it in and exercise, all of a sudden you're getting the kind of the hidden benefits and you don't even know your relationship's improving. Just oh, sneaks absolutely. up on you. My husband, my husband calls it sneak therapy. Are you? Yeah. Doing, are we doing some sneak therapy? Yeah, exactly. Are you trying to? Are you trying to help me lose my waistline and create some good therapy between us? That's a great way to look at it. Talk about um, how we change the behavior. That I mean, we are so caught up in our family, our schedules, our our life um, that we we kind of get away from something that we know would work. How do we change that? How do we get? Maybe a spouse that doesn't like exercising. How do we get them to even think about doing it more with us? So I like to start small because oftentimes with behavior changes, if we think about the big picture, it can feel very overwhelming. And oftentimes the hardest part is just starting. 
so um, the parallel between, you know, what we were just talking about in terms of sexual intimacy and exercise, most people after they exercise or have sex never say, oh, gosh, I really wish I didn't do that. Yeah. Um, it's usually taking your clothes off or putting your running shoes on that is the hardest part. And so being able to set really small goals initially, you know, something like we're making a behavior change, let's hold each other accountable to get out for a walk for 30 minutes as opposed to, okay, our goal is to lose 20 pounds. I mean, that seems like a huge goal and gosh, there's so much I need to do to get there. So I might as well not even start, but something like 30 minutes of walking together um, that isn't high intensity. It's like, sure, I can do that. Mm. Um, And so when we're left to our own devices and just expect ourselves to be accountable, um, then sometimes we aren't as, successful. But if we look for accountability outside ourselves as well as within, um, then our success rate is higher. So if I'm feeling like, oh, I just want to go home and sit on the couch, but my spouse says, let's get this workout before we sit on the couch, then the likelihood of me doing that is greater. Mm. So there needs to be a common um, desire and, and willingness. And then I find once the willingness is there, there's more of a, a commitment to want to follow through with small steps. Yeah, and, and small steps, you know, eventually you start to have successes and then chemistry and then re, and all, then you see the results and then it becomes more just that I guess then then you can up the game. Correct. And, and yeah, and play a harder ball. Is it uh, – do you ever see people that they, they – it's it's just the history. Like, I, yeah, I've already tried that, Kelly. That didn't work. So I don't want to try that again. Oh, sure. I hear that often. Um, but I tell people I have lots of tools in this imaginary toolbox. And so, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But I also think that there's something to be said about making small tweaks and finding a lot of benefit from that. So oftentimes I'll encourage people, you know, to try it for a week and see if it makes any difference. Mm. And usually people can commit to that and then feel the benefit. Yeah. What, um, if you had to chalk it up, what's the one thing that we could do today as a couple that that would make the biggest impact that get that would maybe get us started into a, a health regimen. Is there one specific, simple starting activity that that just it's a no brainer? Um, that's a great question. So a simple um, suggestion that I would start with is having conversation first and foremost, and and not like a long sit down, but being able to just suggest. You know, especially now going into the holidays, it's like this time people are so busy and overeating and not exercising because we're so busy. Um, But to say, hey, I I think this is a great place to start. Let's put a plan in place and let's start with just moving. Mm. Um, You know, I love these things now. Everybody has this like um, track your steps. Yeah, yeah. App on on your phone. I know. You know, even my kids will come home from school and say, "Hey, mom, I logged this many steps." Oh, and it's that's like, so great. That's easy. We're just we're just walking around, and so um, you know, even being able to go to the grocery store together as a couple. I mean, that's an activity if somebody's moving from a non sedentary to a sedentary life. Yeah. 
um, let's start with grocery shopping together and loading the cart and unloading and groceries in. And, um, and so that's simple. Um, and then expanding on that. Um, that's great. And start, yeah, and starting with talking, you can't go wrong there. Well, Kelly, we appreciate uh, your insights there. Kelly Kitley's her name. If you go to her website, kellykitley.com, you can find out more about uh, her treatment, her programs, and also um, just get connected to this new book that's coming out, Myself. It's a new autobiography she's written on survival. And uh, you can find out more again at kellykitley.com. We'll take a break. Go visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. But uh, first, let's take the break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's time, folks, to shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Uh, Apparently, the Benny Hill Show. I love this song. Um, and go visit with our, with our buddies down there. Find out what's coming up on their show today. Spencer and Jeremy. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matt. Hey, what are you suggesting uh, about our show by playing that music? I have no idea. It just reminds me of you two. Two just fun-loving, bumbling cuties. Don't you love that song? It's a great oh, song. Yeah. It's one of the greatest it's hard of all. not to smile at that. Oh, yeah. Did you, guys, uh, did you guys watch the Pro Bowl? Nope. No. Me either. Absolutely not. Okay, here's here's a question. Answer me this one. Riddle me this. How come Alex Smith could very well lose his job, but he's one of the starting quarterbacks, one of the quarterbacks in the Pro Bowl? He's just not it, – it, you know what he is, and he's a B plus. And yeah. to get to the next level – You got to be an A? You got to be better. Ah. He's a good quarterback. Yeah. He's not a quarterback that's going to lead you to the Super Bowl t- typically, right? Unless right. you have an amazing defense or something yeah. to offset that. He's a good player, no doubt. Like one of the one of the greats from Utah, you know? Yeah. What about, uh, I don't know if you, you didn't see this probably, but Drew Brees had his kids on the sideline. Oh, yeah. They uh, got into a little bit of a scuffle and then yeah. they got a talking to from Dad. How fun is that to see a parenting moment brought to you by Drew Brees? <laughs> now, don't make me spank you. <laughs> That's why you're embarrassing your dad. You guys, you can't bring your kids out on the sideline. They're going to get you one way or another. Fred Warner in the college uh, senior bowl, I guess, had a pretty good showing. Six tackles. Man. But there's always the question of, is it more important to do well in all of the practices leading up because the NFL scouts are watching all of those as well Ah. or the actual game? Yeah. And? It's good to be good in both, right? Well, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not be good all around? And from what we're gathering, Fred was pretty consistently good all week. And you think this will equate to pro going pro looking? Oh, good. he will be drafted. That's great. Just a matter of when and where. How cool is that? Yeah. Good for Fred. Yeah. And now you guys, he'll look back at you and just say, hey, I remember you guys way, way, way back in the day. We had Fred on as one of our Early simulcast guests. Really? Right after he signed with BYU football. Like, he came in before he had taken a snap as a defensive player at BYU and was one of our guests, and now he's done, which is crazy to us. That's how old you're getting. You're aging. (gasps) (laughs) Somebody hand Jerem his his liquid drink, his liquid, uh, what do they call it, his liquid uh, breakfast. I already had that. Did you? Frankly. Oh. Hey, did you guys? Uh, I know you're big dancers. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce their names, but the... Ao and Tail. Ao and Tail. Did you guys watch that? I just want to roly roly. 
It were was you, really good. It was really good. It was they, awesome. they are outstanding dancers. Now, would we call them rappers? What would yeah. we call them? Pop. Hip hop. Hip hop, sorry. Yes. Not, not that cool. Um, so what are two hip hop kind of giants doing at the Cougar basketball game? Well, Cosmo and the Cougarettes danced to their song Rolex. Yeah. In, uh, in the fall, and it went viral. And A.O. and Taylor reached out to the Brigham and wanted to come here, and BYU <laughs> set it up, and then uh, they were the halftime performance. And to BYU's credit, the student, the students, the Rock, yeah, they showed up in full force half an hour before the game. Did they really? This. They were packed like it, BYU was playing Gonzaga. <laughs> so there was this extra juice in the building that was yeah. really cool. That's and great. halftime, it was a great performance. If you missed it, it's it's the most lit thing that's ever happened to BYU. It really, it was very well produced. They even that's got the everybody in the stands to like turn their phones on and yeah, it, it was awesome. It was awesome. It was way better than the game. My toe was tapping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Major tap out of my toe. Hey, uh, on your show uh, coming up in just a few minutes, what what should we be expecting? We're going to talk about dynamic duos along huh? the lines of Ao and Teo, but really Elijah Bryant and Yoli Childs, what they're doing. Right now, it's pretty special. So we'll discuss dynamic duos hmm. in BYU history, specifically post Jimmer Fredette and Jackson Emery. Ooh, there you so go. So basically the last seven seasons. That's cool. That's a good topic. There's Which also coincides with the West Coast Conference era, mm-hmm. fittingly. Fittingly. Like post Jimmer. That's how the timeline post-Jimmer. is. Post Jimmer. That's how the timeline PJ, is. PJ, uh, we call that. Post. Yeah. Let's talk to Mark Durant. He's the radio analyst for the Cougars. He will discuss that point. And can BYU beat Gonzaga Saturday in Spokane? Oh, they, can they, could they possibly do it four times in a row? Yes, they possibly could do it four times in a row. You know really? why? It's mental for Gonzaga right now. There's something about it, man. They're, they're scared of BYU up there. It's mental. Well, especially after A.O. and Teo. <laughs> we have A.O. and Teo here now? Man. Yeah. They're also, like... is it a big deal, Matt, yeah. that BYU basketball is 18-5 and five at this point of the season? Or mm. no deal? Well, it's kind of a no deal if they can't beat St. Mary's and the Big G. That's part of the combo, right? It's <sighs> all in there. Because 18 and 5 is fantastic. Yeah. Compare that to last season. Where totally. is it? Yeah. Where is it getting BYU differently than last year? I, I don't know that there's an answer to that. Hmm. Well, plus the mere fact that AO and Teo are now members of the church. That's great. I just want to roly roly right into <laughs> that uh, membership. You, you know, that's getting out there like, oh, yeah, yeah, they've been members for years. Oh my goodness. That's what happens. Anyway, you guys don't have to address that. The exclusive club of Mormonism. Um you guys, it's going to be a great show. A. Uh yeah. Uh B, it's simulcast. So mm-hmm. you can catch if you want to just hear the the sultry voices of these two, you can just listen or you can go watch at BYU TV and just take in their their incredible light. Right, guys? <laughs> It's not what we're going for, per se. I don't know. We'll but, take uh, it. But join us, yeah, but for join whatever us. reason you want. Either way, in five straight minutes. Thanks, gentlemen. Knock them dead. Go get the body makeup on. See, again, I think that's the, the downside of simulcasting. I always thought it would be fun to have a show that we could simulcast where they could look at us. And then my, you know, people around me, my, my entourage, I like to call them, they're like, you know, maybe people don't want to look at you, Dad. Maybe we so these are your kids yeah. that are your entourage. Okay, yeah. maybe we need to get out the uh, the spray mussels. Yeah, don't you have some cans of that? Well, I have spray cheese, and if I okay. eat enough of it, I feel kind of I don't know. 
Your stomach muscle-y. feels strong. Your stomach muscles start to oh, bulge. Oh, yeah. No, they actually start to convulse a lot. It's hmm. weird. Totally weird. Totally weird. Hey, as you know, we like to always wrap up the show with a little hero story because we want to bring you hope. We want to bring you peace and joy. So today's hero is a shopper that has been praised for his courage after he was captured on video tackling a thief during a botched jewelry store robbery. CCTV footage held as amazing by the shop's owner shows Andy Fiddler, 52, tearing off his jacket and tackling the man during the robbery in Preston, Lancashire, uh, UK. The thief, who had had his face covered, rushed into the shop, jumped over a counter to rummage through the jewelry on display, according to the shop's owners. Mr. Fiddler was browsing for an engagement ring with his wife uh, and or fiance, Mandy Rishton, 45, when he tackled the thief. Gary Shaw, 55, who was the owner of the shop since 1982, held Mr. Fiddler's courage as fantastic. It was impressive the way he took off his jacket, jumped in there. He said the incident on January 13th caused more than $400 damage, and it was the shop's fourth robbery in its 35-year history. We're only a small company. We've worked for 35 years. We've worked very hard. And, well, it doesn't feel you know right for somebody to just come in and try to take all that away. So uh, we we uh, aren't the stars here. Uh, I'm going to have this is what uh, Fiddler said. I'm going to have Robert De Niro play me in the film. Anyway, pretty cool story, and uh, he's the hero of the day, Andy Fiddler, who stepped in as he was about to you know purchase a ring for a, a wonderful wedding and marriage. He still was willing to risk it. So that should bring you some hope, folks. There are good people out there that will do the difficult thing and and go out of their way to make a difference. That's why we do the show, because you're part of that goodness. I think we all are in the end. Life is good, and you may not always see that. We try to bring out the positive if we can. And uh, let's make it a challenge for all of us. Until we meet tomorrow again and talk again tomorrow, let's do what we can to elevate our lives, elevate the game and the people around us. That would make a whole big difference in this world. That's the show. We will be back again tomorrow. Uh, Up next, BYU Sports Nation.